Dale's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play, Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. We've got my Georgetown Hoyas at the end of the podcast to talk about. We've got the heavyweight championship fight coming up this Saturday in Vegas between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. The rematch that I'm going to be getting into and also the NBA as it go down now as in the second season. But uh, we begin the podcast today with the All-Star Weekend. The NBA All-Star Game is over. NBA All-Star Weekend is over. A very successful three days for the NBA. And the game itself, Team LeBron beat Team Giannis 157-155. Under the new Elam rule instituted this season with the game ending when one team reached a specific target score. The game ended when Chicago native Anthony Davis sank the second of two free throws, Kawhi Leonard won the first Kobe Bryant MVP award. He finished with 30 points, seven rebounds, four assists. He finished with seven of the 12 first place votes. LeBron James had three. Anthony Davis and Chris Paul had one vote each. Now, as I mentioned before, the league embraced the Elam. Have you ever heard of this nonsense? The Elam scoring system. And this was the rule that was recommended by Chris Paul. It reset the score after each quarter. Then had a 24-point total for the final quarter in honor of Kobe Bryant. The, this pre- prevented any type of blowouts and allowed the captains and coaches to re- re-energize and go after wins each frame. So basically also what they were doing was the teams were also playing for charity, $100,000 each for the team that won the first quarter and the second quarter and then won the game in its entirety. Team LeBron was playing for Chicago Scholars, and Team Giannis was playing for after-school batters. So, I think the game played out pretty well. It started off kind of laissez-faire, like it would any other All-Star game. Team LeBron won the first quarter 53-41. Then Team Giannis took the second quarter 51-30. I did notice, and people can sit there and be cynical about it, because, you know, I was watching the first half, or the first quarter, of this all-star game, and as I mentioned before, they were kind of going half-assed just a little bit, a lot of dunks, a lot of Olay defense, and a lot of defense that made you think that you were watching a Washington Wizards versus Houston Rockets basketball game back in October, but I was just kind of thinking to myself, man, I wonder if these coaches, or I wonder if LeBron or Giannis or somebody, or the captain of the losing team is going to be like, hey, wait a minute, y'all, we've got to give a little bit better of an, of an effort. I'm not saying we have to go balls to the wall, man, but we've got the kids that we're playing $100,000 for, and this is for some pretty good charities. This is for some pretty good things that they're trying to do, and we're up here not giving it 100%, or at least not giving it 75, 80%. Man, we got to do a little bit better. And it seemed like in the second quarter, Giannis had that type of attitude like, oh, man, I can't let the after-school matters down. I mean, we already lost the first quarter. That's $100,000 going to Chicago Scholars, man, we got these kids here, we got these fans here, they got these little kids cheering for us, man, we've got to do something, and Giannis came out and played like he was 
in Game 7 of the NBA Finals, man, as I mentioned before, as his team won the second quarter, 51-30. to 30, And you can sit there and say, like, you know what, maybe halfway through when Team LeBron and the players on Team LeBron saw Giannis doing what he was doing, he was like, they were like, all right, let's step back. We got 100 grand for our kids. Let's not be greedy here. Let's not take all the money and leave the other charity out in the cold. Let's go ahead. He's playing hard. They're in the lead. We're not going to go and try to see what we can do to try to win the quarter. So that way, everyone comes out a winner. The players are playing much harder. The charities are getting some money. So everyone looks good in the end. The money is being divvied up correctly, and the game starts to get a little bit more of a passionate feel about it. So Team Giannis won the first half because they won the second So the second quarter so decisively. They won the first half, the total score being 92-83. Then the third quarter started, and you saw it picking up just a little bit more. You saw the intensity and everything else picking up a little bit more as the players got themselves into a lather. And some of the players, some of the first-time players, some of the first-time All-Stars started getting on the floor and started doing their thing and started making their mark. So at the end of the third quarter, the two teams tied 41-41, forcing the $100,000 of that quarter to carry over into the fourth quarter. And that's when things started getting interesting because Team Giannis was, was leading going into the fourth quarter, 133-124, and that's when they started playing. That's when the game got fun. That's when the game got enjoyable. That's when it was like, all right, now we're talking. Now this kind of reminds me of when Tom Chambers won the MVP, 150-147 the West over the East back in the late 80s when the All-Star game was in Seattle and they played at the uh, Superdome. What was it? Was it Superdome or the big uh, arena out there or the big, big stadium where the Seahawks used to play out there in Seattle? Now we started getting interesting. Then it started getting to the point where I forgot what All-Star game it was back in D.C. where Allen Iverson won the MVP award and the East won the game in overtime. It started reaching that type of intensity. And that's when, despite the sloppy play and despite the fact that the field goal percentages were in the mid-30s, the fact that the players were actually trying and you saw the genuine passion, you saw the genuine competitive fire come out of those guys. It made the fact that there was shooting was down a little bit. I think if you're watching the basketball game, you want to see something closer to a real NBA basketball game than what we've been given. And that's one of the main reasons why they put in this new system. So despite the fact that there weren't 10,000 dunks and 15,000 points and a bunch of yawning on defense each way in the fourth quarter, man, it was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic that we got to see the exact opposite of that going into the fourth quarter or going uh, for that fourth quarter. And I mentioned before, playing for pride, playing for Kobe, and also playing for those charities. So you had Giannis playing defense on LeBron one-on-one. You had Kyle Lowry taking charges. He took two charges, I think. I know he took one on uh, James Harden, but taking charges in an all-star game? Come on, man. That's almost as ridiculous as a team double-teaming somebody as they did when Shaq was back in his glory days with the Orlando Magic before he went to the uh, Lakers. So I'm hoping the game continues with the same rules next season in next season's all-star game. I thought... It was an absolutely fabulous, entertaining weekend. Again, I thought it was fantastic that the players played as hard as they did. I love the fact of the charity that they were playing for in terms of, you know, we speak about these greedy athletes and we speak about these athletes that you incentivize them to play hard, to incentivize them to really give a damn about this game, that we have to throw some type of financial carrot out there. We've been talking about that when people are, or when the league has been discussing playing an in-season tournament, what would it be? 
to get the players on board? What would it take for the players to be interested in having an in-season tournament like, tournament like that? And we're talking about throwing up a whole bunch of money. So it's nice to see that, you know what? These guys were playing hard for charities. These guys were giving a lot of their time and their effort out there on the basketball court for some viable charities for the Chicago area uh, charities um, charities out there. So I think it was fantastic, man. I think it was an absolutely great game in terms of at least of the fourth quarter is concerned. And again, I cannot wait to see what was going to be happening when it comes back to uh, next All-Star game. See who's going to be picking. See who's going to be choosing. Maybe we can even get it to where, I don't know, maybe these guys can start playing with a little bit more fervor and a little bit more, shall we say, nastiness of an attitude in, before the start of the fourth quarter. But overall, for the All-Star game, it was a very good game by All-Star standards in sports. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what was happening during the All-Star Game, during the NBA All-Star Game and All-Star Game Weekend. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a Saturday viewer of the All-Star Games and when the NBA All-Star Games, when they talk about the skilled competition and the three-point shooting competition and the slam dunk competition. I don't know if I've grown too old to be watching those things or just don't care anymore. I think a combination of all of those things, but uh, didn't have the opportunity to watch any of the festivities that was going on Saturday night in the NBA in terms of the three-point shooting contest, the skills competition. Bam, I'm a Bayou, though. Winning the skills competition. Man, when that guy got into the league, I thought when he was drafted, I thought this was going to be a guy that was going to be a little bit better version of Bisbach Biombo, a guy who could be an energy guy, a guy that could be a rebounder, a guy that could give you most of the value on the defensive end. I did not know. I didn't have, I didn't have any idea that he was going to turn into such a skilled offensive uh, performer. But he won the, he won the, uh, he won that contest, man. He won the skills competition and Buddy Heald and doing all those things with the three-point shooting. And then it came down to the dunk contest. And Miami Heat forward Derrick Jones Jr. winning over the Orlando Magic forward Aaron Gordon. Watched the highlights. Some great dunks, some very nice dunks. But I heard there was also a dunk controversy. How about another dunk controversy in Chicago? What's going on about that? Dwayne Wade was one of the three judges to give Gordon a score of nine on his final dunk. Wade was a member of the same team, of course, that Jones plays for. We're speaking about the Miami Heat. So shortly after the contest, it came out that the other judge, Common, he said the plan was for the judges to give Gordon the same score as Jones because what they wanted, they wanted to have another round or another dunk contest or a dunk off before they could give the final ruling and the decision on who was going to win the uh, dunk contest. So basically, they were going to try to get more bang for the buck. They were going to try to get more dunks for the dough and see who could come out. And Dwayne Wade flipped the script on him and said, no, nah, that's cool, we're good, and gave it to Derrick Jones Jr., who, again, 
Saw the dunks, they were spectacular. Saw the dunks by Aaron Gordon, they were spectacular. But you love it when you have fantastic dunks and then a little bit of controversy. And I mentioned before about the controversy dunk contest Chicago. What is going on with all of this stuff? Why is it that every time we have a dunk contest, an NBA dunk contest in Chicago, people are whining and screaming about someone getting screwed? Because if you remember back in 1988, when they had the slam dunk contest final between Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins, that ended in controversy. And to this day, because I watched the dunk contest back then, because, you know, I was just trying to get my jump and dunk on, I say again that Dominique Wilkins won that contest, or at the very least, he got robbed. I remember, I, I remember that contest. The two combined for, what, four out of the six dunks that was put on by, that, by those guys, four of the dunks were perfect 50 scores. So Wilkins then took a comfortable lead heading into the fourth and final dunk after earning straight scores of 50 points. And you know, I think Jordan got like a 47 or a 48. This was a time where they had five judges and you judge it on whether it was a zero to a 10. So I think Jordan on one of the dunks, which was nice, got himself like a 47 or a 48. And, and he came in and did some spectacular dunks and got 50. So of course, of course, you know, but the folks in Chicago were getting heated because their favorite son, Michael Jordan, they felt was getting squeezed a little bit on some of these judges' um, scoring scoring uh, deals. So Dominique, on his final dunk, he saved the best for last. He came up on the left baseline and gave this two-handed windmill jam, which was, again, that was the best dunk. Go ahead and, and go back on YouTube and see if they have the, that dunking contest between... Neek and MJ back in 1988. So basically, again, on the left baseline, Neek came in for a world a, a whirlwind windmill jam. And that scored a 45. And again, that was the best dunk of them all. And it was kind of like, okay, fuck it. Jordan only needs, what, 47, 48 to win? Jordan did a Julius Irving jumping from the foul line dunk to uh, win the contest. That was it. That was about all. So it was like, and of course you saw Neek sitting there saying shit. As soon as he got that 45 on that dunk, he just says shit, I'm going to lose. This man could go ahead and jump from the, he could, he could jump from two feet out and do a regular dunk. They're going to give him this contest. It's the home crowd. He's in Chicago. Michael Jordan was the man back in 88. He wasn't, he was the man in 88. He wasn't the champion that we know him just yet. For the younger generation who idolized Kobe and idolized LeBron and maybe didn't get the whole flavor of what MJ was all about. MJ really didn't become MJ the champion, MJ the iconic, MJ the goat, and all those other things, probably until about the early 90s in terms, that's when his ascension to the greatest was complete, probably the year after the Dream Team came along. That's when it was clear-cut, no doubt about it, put him in there, no doubt he was the man, he was the goat, and all that other stuff started when he finally won himself a championship. Back in 1988, he was still a guy who was supremely talented, the most gifted player in the NBA, but there were still questions because Bird and Magic were still running the show in the NBA. The Pistons were doing their thing with the bad boy Pistons of Isaiah and Bill Lambeer and Rodman and those guys. So there was still that type of hierarchy that Jordan had to overcome before he put his put his plant down put his flag down on being the greatest and being a man in the game and all this kind of stuff. So 88 was, again, he was doing the dunk contest. So, you know, once Jordan became the man, truly became the man, there was no reason for him to go ahead and do those things. But yeah, 88, there were still some hurdles that Jordan had to get over. And 
winning that dunk contest over Dominique Wilkins. Again, it was Chicago protecting this boy because Magic was still the man. Bird was still the man. Detroit was still the champions. Chicago had to say, you know what? We've got ourselves our guy in Michael Jordan, and we're going to protect him at all costs. Go ahead. We'll give Neek 45 on this tremendous dunk. You go ahead, and you win yourself that dunk contest at home. Scored 42 in the next day's All-Star game. Won MVP, and Jordan was clearly on his way. So I tell you, man, damn. Damn, damn, damn. What's up with Chicago and these slam dunk contest controversies? No more. No more. I really have to give it to, and we're speaking about the NBA All-Star festivities on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. Wendell Wallace with you. So glad that you could be with us. The NBA pregame was absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I thought Magic Johnson's words about David Stern and Kobe Bryant were fantastic. Jennifer Hudson singing or yelling, whatever, whatever way you want to put it. For all we know, sang the song in a purple dress. I tell you what. I mean, I know that she was feeling it. I know she got the spirit. I know she did all these things. I know she got into her Patty LaBelle. And I love myself some Patty LaBelle when she's singing, not yelling. I know it was emotional. I know it was cool. And I was kind of feeling it just a little bit. But I would have felt it a little bit more if she would have put more emotion into the actual words coming out of her mouth that I could understand instead of her yelling. I mean, I, I was... I texted my friend. I was like, "What is she yelling?" I have I had to go look the song up because, you know, she started getting she started feeling the getting the spirit inside of her. But Aretha Franklin can get away with it because she's Aretha Franklin. And as much as I love Patti Labelle, when she's in concert and she starts singing and doing all that other kind of stuff, and I'm like, "Patty, Patty, 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 please, please, no yelling. Just sing this. Just sing, sing the song. Please sing the song. Let me let me understand the words. Please let me understand the words." So, despite that. I mean, you know, I think Hudson did a very good job and she moved the crowd, she moved the heartstrings and she moved the emotions, what she was supposed to be doing and her her feelings were genuine. Dr. Dre's tribute to Kobe was fantastic. Shaka Khan again singing the national anthem. Didn't she look doggone good for being 62 years old and wearing an MJ23 jersey out there? So I thought the festivities was 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 fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Common was excellent. I love the fact when he was rhyming the all-star players and this tribute to the city of Chicago was great. Mentioning the, all the greats from the city and all walked alive. We brought in my boy. Even though I love, you know, my president, still my president, Barack Obama. I don't, I don't recognize the piece of shit that we have in there now that this country's stupid enough to vote in. So I don't recognize that con man piece of shit. So President Obama is still my president. But one thing I will, would call out Barack on because... Every time they talk about the city of Chicago, whether it be about the Chicago Bears or whether it be about Chicago Cubs or whether it be about the Chicago Bulls, Barack's always sitting up there talking like he representing Chicago. Man, you were born in Hawaii, man. You were born in Hawaii. You lived overseas. You only came to Chicago when you started uh, your, you know, you started dealing with politics and you were a community organizer and all those things. You weren't born and bred in Chicago, man. Stop it. Stop it. Look, I know you're a politician, and I understand folks who are going to hate you are going to take that and talk about you're a liar and you're no good and you're a phony and all these types of things. And I'm just saying, look, man, I know you got to play the politics game, and if you're going to have to lie just a little bit, if you're just going to have to bend the truth just a little bit, okay, do it with that and maybe not some policy that's going to affect me or affect my people that I care about and my mom and all those types of things. So I get it. If you want to claim Chicago 
that's cool. But man, you should put a disclaimer before you start talking about Walter Payton, before you start talking about MJ, before you start talking about Ernie Banks, before you start talking about the losable, the, the, the lovable Cubs and all that kind of stuff. You should make the disclaimer that, hey, look, I was born in Hawaii. You know, I even moved overseas before I came back to Hawaii. But in my formative years, I mean, this is where I met my wife. This is where I got my start in politics. This is where Barack Obama, the man that you know and love, this is where he began to grow and become a person and all the other things. That's cool. You should start by claiming that. You should start with that disclaimer. Because, man, you can't come to Chicago. You can't come to any city as a grown man and all of a sudden be talking about, yeah, that's my boy. Yeah, that's my city. Chi-Town, baby. This, that, the other. No, 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 no. The re I claim Washington, D.C. I'm Maryland born and I'm Maryland bred. And when I die, I'll be Maryland dead. I live in Las Vegas. My home is the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. I can live to be 250 years old, man. And I could be living in the same town home. I could be living in the same place until I'm that old. I could have another, well, I don't have any kids. I could meet somebody. I can meet the love of my life. I can meet my soulmate tonight here in Las Vegas and I can impregnate her 15 times and have the most beautiful, wonderful kids who ever walk the face of the earth. Las Vegas will never, ever be my home. It'll be the place that I live. I enjoy living in Las, uh, Las Vegas. There's a lot of great things about living in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is not my home. Washington, D.C., the Silver Spring, Maryland area, the Washington metropolitan area, Aspen Hill community, that's my home. Bell Peel Elementary, E. Brooklyn Middle School, John F. Kennedy High School, that's my home. Hewitt Avenue, Luzon Avenue, Georgia Avenue, those are my homes. That's what I'm talking about. You know, Del Mercado, that's my area. Those are my places. Foxhall, where we used to play basketball at night. Going down to the recreation and going down to the pool and playing basketball. That's that's my that's my home. That's who I am. That's what I'm all about. That's my foundation. That's what I claim. I don't claim anywhere else. I don't claim even though I was living in San Diego for two years. I don't claim because I was living in the Bay Area for a few years. I don't claim because I lived in Baltimore for a few years. I don't claim because I lived in Warrensburg, Missouri or Phoenix, Arizona or any of these other places that I've lived as an adult. I don't claim any of those places. Never have, never will. My love, my hometown, who I am, friends, family, all of those things is all encapsulated in living in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, baby. Born April 5th, 1969, lived the first four or five years on Luzon Avenue in Northwest Washington, D.C., moved up to Silver Spring, Maryland, Wheaton, Maryland, whatever you want to call it, and that's what I'm all about. So Barack Obama, my man, I love the fact that you politic when you talk about Chicago is my home, Chicago's all this, but please, please, still my president, still the man that I honor. Still the man that, you know, I admire for what you've done and the roles that you've paid for the future generations. Just make that disclaimer that you were born in Hawaii. And maybe the situation where, yeah, you were born in Hawaii, but maybe you don't want to claim Hawaii. Ah, but guess where you're opening up that presidential library? You ain't opening it up in Chicago. Guess where you're living right now? You ain't living in Chicago. That library is going to be in Hawaii. And right now, you live in Washington, D.C. So come on, Barack. I love you. Again, I love you. But I thought it was cute. Because he's always done that. 
Oh, yeah, Walter Payton, that's my guy. Shit, man, when you were seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you ain't no shit about Chicago. You ain't no shit about no damn Ernie Banks. You don't know nothing about no damn Walter Payton. You ain't know nothing about Michael Jordan. Did you know Did, did you know Bob Love? Did you know the mother uh, the mother team before they got MJ and Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and Bill Cartwright and all those guys that started winning championships? Shit, you weren't there. You weren't down there in, a, in Hawaii rocking a Bob Love t-shirt or Bob Love jersey or or. Jerry Jerry Sloan jersey. Come on, man. But we still love you anyway. We still love you anyway. But in all, I thought it was great. They represented Mark Aguirre. They represented Isaiah Thomas. I thought it was fantastic when they represented Ben Wilson. I mean, that's a wonderful story, tragic story, inspiring story all in itself. You know, the man that killed him is actually walking the streets right now. He went to jail, did his time and got out of jail and doing things, and Ben Wilson right now was still in the ground. I'm surprised they didn't uh, recognize R. Kelly. Oh, that would have been a bad idea. But basically, I thought Common did an absolutely fantastic job in bringing up the legends and bringing up Oprah and bringing up others in Chicago. Really, uh, really putting the spotlight on a on a really good city, a, a major city, of course, Chicago. Didn't talk about Robert Glaboyevich, uh, did he? No, okay. All right, so Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what was happening All-Star Weekend, the All-Star Game, the pregame festivities. You know, one of the reasons why I'm so proud to be a huge fan of the NBA, and I don't think that the NBA gets enough credit for it, and they never will. And I'm surprised some of our leaders in our community when we speak about the NBA, I don't think that they give guys like LeBron James or a Kobe Bryant or a Giannis Adenokupo or someone like a Magic Johnson or any of these guys, or even, even David Stern and Adam Silver and all these other guys. I don't think the league gets enough credit for being the only sport in the world, I can think. Now, I don't know what they're doing as far as football is concerned in the other countries and how they represent, but... The NBA is the only sports league in the world where the target audience is the minority of the country. And that's the audience that they go for. Or that's the foundation of what they're bringing to the fans of all races, faces, places, and ages. That's what it's all about. I mean, this presentation for the NBA, this NBA All-Star Weekend just kind of reminded everybody Basically how black the NBA is. But not just black, but black and proud. When you're watching NBA games this weekend, or when you're watching NBA games in the month of February, they're always bringing up Black History Month. What they do for Martin Luther King's birthday, the holiday where they go out and play these games, and the NBA runs as promos speaking about having the players speak about Martin Luther King and what he's done for society and everything that he's done to make this world a better place to live in. I mean, the NBA is so out front in the fact that we are a league that's predominantly black. Our leaders of the game, the faces of the game are black. And we're gonna we're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to try to hide it. We're not going to try to reshape it. This is what we're giving you. We're giving you LeBron James in all his glory. We're giving you LeBron James with his tats. 
Back in the day, we're giving you Allen Iverson with the grammar. We're giving you Allen Iverson with the cornrows. We're giving you Allen Iverson 100%. And we're going to ask Allen Iverson to be 100% Allen Iverson. We're not going to ask him to be Michael Jordan. We're not going to ask him to be corporate. We're not going to ask him to make sure that he doesn't put the fear into white folks or anybody else. We're going to let Allen Iverson be Allen Iverson. And when he makes a mistake, we're going to get through that. When he might embarrass the league with some of the actions that he does, we're going to get through that. And we're going to do that with the Portland Trailblazers. We're going to do that with the perceived, the NBA's the bunch of thugs. We're not going to change. We're not going to tell these guys that they need to, quote unquote, make them more acceptable for white folks. We're going to get past the storm. We're going to get past the malice in the palace. We're going to get past the notion that the NBA, back in the day before LeBron James came in in 2003, we're going to get over the tag that people used to have about the NBA, the stereotypes that people used to have about the NBA, that it's too black, that it's too ghetto, that it's too thugs, that has too many tats. These guys don't go to college. These guys can't shoot a jump shot. These guys want to smoke weed all day. These guys want to hang out with their posses. All of that bullshit, all of that nonsense, all of that hidden racism, all of that ignorance that folks used to say about the NBA I mean, hell, this is back in the day with the NFL who continues to have their clientele, continues to have the employees working for that league, having spousal abuse. Right now, there's an offensive lineman for the Cleveland Browns who's in trouble because I guess he was selling marijuana or some nonsense like that. I read a stat, and I think I put it in one of my past podcasts, that there was a time, I think in, I think it was the month of September, where it was the first time in like almost a decade, one month went by. It was the first time in almost a decade where there was a month free in the NFL where its players didn't commit some type of crime, where a player wasn't arrested. Are you kidding me? I could not believe that. And it's like they were celebrating. Like, wow, aren't we awesome? We went through the whole 30 days without one of our players being arrested or, 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 or embarrassing themselves. Are you kidding me? It used to make me laugh. It used to make me shake my head. It's like, how in the world could we be sitting up here? I used to do a radio show in Phoenix, Arizona, KDUS 1060. I used to do a radio show back in the day where this is when Stephon Marbury was traded from the New Jersey Nets to the Phoenix Suns and Jason Kidd, big blockbuster trade. Jason Kidd was very popular in the Phoenix, Arizona area. I remember Charles Barkley coming on the airwaves and blasting Jerry Colangelo for the trade and how he did Jason Kidd wrong and all these other things. And there was some nonsense going down with him and his wife and that drama that was played out. So basically, Jason Kidd was traded from the Phoenix Suns to the New Jersey Nets and the Suns got themselves back Stephon Marbury. Well, my goodness, I had to go on the air because back then it truly was a Phoenix Suns town because the Cardinals stunk out loud. Hockey was hockey and the college sports really weren't that great. It was mainly a, why does Jake Plummer play? He sucks. He needs to sit down and all this kind of stuff. So that the sports talk was Plummer sucks. He needs to sit down or he just has a bad team around him with a bad organization. You can either talk about that or you could talk about the Phoenix Suns. Those were the only two topics that people normally talked about. They didn't talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks, despite the fact that they had Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling and, that, that squad that beat the Yankees to win the um, World Series, that really wasn't played too much. Again, hockey with Keith Kachuk and Shane Doan, no one really cared about them. 
college sports with Rob Evans as the coach of ASU football, uh, basketball, and no one really cared about those sports. When I got on the radio and when I was speaking sports 10 hours a week on KDUS back in Phoenix, it was the Phoenix Suns, and it was why does Jake Plummer either stink why is he still playing or why can't we put a great team around him? Because Jake Plummer is just a great quarterback waiting to burst on the scene and do what he did. And when he was playing quarterback at Arizona state. So when Stefan Marbury came to the team after the trade, my discussions and my educating the Phoenix, Arizona community it wasn't about, well, how's he going to fit in or what's he going to do in terms of being a ball player. I had to calm these folk down because the talk from the listeners were, we got ourselves this thug, we got ourselves this guy with, a, with the big bald head and the gold teeth and the tats and blah, 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 and he's a bad guy and I can't believe Colangelo got this guy. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where in the world does... Where in the world did you come up with the definition or where in the world did you come up with the observation that Stephon Marbury was a thug? He might be a bad teammate. He might be an egomaniac. He might be a selfish ball player. That doesn't make him a thug because if you remember, he tried to, well, he did. He got his way out of Minnesota because he didn't want to share the spotlight with Kevin Garnett and Tom Gugliotta and he wanted to play close to home. So they traded him to the New Jersey Nets, which Peter Vesey, pointed out when the trade was made, he wanted to be close to home. Well, he made his all-season home back in those days in Atlanta. So I don't know what he was talking about wanting to go back home and play. But, 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 but uh, if you want to criticize, and I was telling the callers and listeners at the time, hey, look, man, if you want to criticize Stephon Barberry about how's he going to fit in with this team because we go from a pure classic point guard and Jason Kidd to a shoot first, pass second point guard and Stephon Barberry. If you want to maybe talk about his character in terms of, is he going to be down with this trade? Is he going to be wanting to move if things go sour again, like he did when he was in Minnesota and the noise that he was making when he was with the New Jersey Nets near the end of his tenure with that team. If you want to talk about that, I'm all for it. If you want to criticize Stephon Marbury, the basketball player, I'm, I'm cool with that. I have no problems with that. We can have that discussion, but damn, why am I spending the last three or four days trying to defend Stephon Marbury in terms of the human being, in terms of him being a thug, in terms of him having a posse, which he didn't, in terms of him being a bad influence to the kids of Phoenix, which he wasn't, why am I doing that, why am I speaking about the guy's character with the bald head and the gold teeth, what, what am I doing here, what are you doing here, do you realize how ignorant you sound, do you realize how racist you sound, do you realize how stupid you sound when you say those type of things? So that was the NBA back in the day, and not once, not with David Stern, not with anybody else, not with any of the owners, none of these guys ever came to these players at any point in time and said, hey, look, you know what, we've got white fans, the majority of fans who are buying these season tickets and are sitting in the front row and spending the sponsorships and the advertising and the TV executives, they're all white. And they're all older white folks. And a lot of them might not be comfortable with your background. A lot of them might not be comfortable with your cats. A lot of them might not be comfortable with your posse. A lot of them might not like the fact that, you know what, you didn't go to college and all you can do is shoot a three-pointer or slam dunk. So could you kind of appease the white folks? Could you kind of talk a certain way? Could you kind of dress a certain way? Could you kind of act a certain way? Could you kind of hang out with a certain type of crew? Never once 
did the NBA do that? Now, you could talk about David Stern implementing uh, dress code as being racist, as Steven Jackson and others stated at the time. I thought that was ridiculous. But you know what? It was like, cool, we'll go ahead and we'll put on a suit and tie when we're not playing. But you know what? We're going to become fastenesis. So instead of kids loving us for our swag and for our look and for our hustle and for our throwback jerseys when we are sitting on the bench and for our Tims and for our, our baggy pants, that's cool. You know what we'll do? We'll have kids love us because we'll be looking like fashion models, because we'll be wearing the finest clothes, because we'll be looking like Sean Puffy Combs, the way he used to dress, or kind of looking like Biggie, this kind of stuff that they used to put on when they would go out dressed to the nine. So the NBA and the relationship that it had with its players. And a lot of them came from backgrounds where white folks wouldn't understand who, what they were, or maybe black folks who didn't come from that area, maybe lost themselves in terms of that connection with different parts of the community. Maybe they would find it resentful. Maybe an older generation of black folks who were offended by the fact that these guys were listening to rap music and these guys were wearing baggy clothes and these guys were some of them were smoking weed and all this kind of stuff. So there was a disconnect there. The NBA, not once, not once, not one God darn time, God darn time, ever told these guys that you need to quote unquote kind of tone it down a little bit. You need to stop being yourself. So when LeBron was doing what he was doing, when Charles Barkley was doing what he was doing in terms of off the court and some of the comments that he made and LeBron being socially active and everything, they didn't sit there and try to tame him or try to calm him down or try to talk to him or maybe kind of see what he could do to appease some of the fangoers, appease some of the ticket holders, appease some of the advertisers. The NBA never did that and they still don't do that and I think it's remarkable with the race relations that we have in this country today that we have in the world today where it is far from perfect and white folks are still ignorant as far as the stereotype of what a black man is all about sometimes and sometimes and all the times and many times that a black man has to, especially a young black man around the age of an NBA basketball player, still has to fight those stereotypes, still has to fight those images just because I dress a certain way, just because I walk a certain way, just because I talk a certain way. That doesn't mean that I'm a thug. That doesn't mean I'm ignorant. That doesn't mean that your son and your daughter can't put my poster on your wall. That doesn't mean that you're Kids can't buy my merchandise. That doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that your son or your daughter can't idolize me or take me as being one of their heroes. You know, and I think the NBA has done an awesome job in a league that is overwhelmingly black and overwhelmingly pro-black and strong black and showing their blackness in all shapes and forms, not all ways of showing our blackness and showing our community and showing off a community. We are not a monolithic in terms of the way we talk and the way we act and the way we dress and the way we carry ourselves. There's a wide range of blackness that is love, that is adored, that we're showing those who might not... Uh, might not come in contact. So me being a fan of the NBA makes me proud. It makes me very proud because, again, I look at this league and I look at people like a Kobe Bryant and I take a look at a LeBron James who really, in essence, are almost two different people when you're speaking about personalities. Kobe was more like MJ when it came to the eloquence of his spoke of, his, of the spoken word, the fact of his education, of where he grew up, of the way that he carried himself, uh, all of those things. When you compare that to LeBron, who's a little bit more rough and rugged, but still, but still a guy of influence, still a guy of intelligence. But 
he might not have the book smart. He might not have the SAT smart, say, of someone like a Kobe Bryant. He might not speak with the elegance of a Kobe Bryant. Kobe knew three languages, spoke them fluently, and was not afraid or not ashamed to show that he knew these languages and could speak them fluently. Here was a guy who uttered class. Here was a guy who were, it was like, wow, okay, Kobe, you are safe enough for my child and for white folks who are living in the suburbs or black folks who are living in mansions back up in Beverly Hills or Potomac, Maryland or Summerlin, Nevada. That it is okay for my child to wear your 24 jersey because of your eloquence, because of the way that you carry yourself, because of the way you articulated your diction and, and all of those type of things. Of course, excusing what he did in 2003. LeBron, again, it's something a little bit different. He came up in a different background. He came up with a different upbringing. But yet and still, both of these guys are still just as black as either one of them. One wasn't blacker than the other. The other one doesn't have a different black experience. Not, you know, one eight. LeBron ain't 100% black while Kobe's like 75% black because of the fact that he grew up in a two-parent home or he grew up in Laurel Berry in uh, Pennsylvania where we're predominantly white. So we have just a whole range of athletes, of superstars that we can present and be proud to do that. From LeBron James to Steph Curry to Joel Embiid to James Harden to Kevin Durant, to Anthony Davis, and the list goes on and on. Then, with that being the foundation, with that being the leading role, the star, then we could even now move to the opportunity and open up the avenue for international players. So we can bring in now a Luka. We can bring in, as I mentioned before, a Joel Embiid. We can bring in someone like a Giannis Adinokupo. We can bring in a Nikola Jokic. We can bring in all of these other Guys, we brought in a Yao Bing from China. We bring in all of these guys who can help grow the sport of basketball to the worldview. And guess what? Now, all of a sudden, maybe that kid who's living on the south side of Chicago, maybe that kid who's living in southeast D.C., maybe that kid who's living in Watson, L.A., maybe that kid who's living in, living in Liberty City in, in, in Miami, who might naturally gravitate to someone who looks like him, maybe someone with the same background like him, Maybe someone who came from the same upbringing as him because they can make that connection. Maybe instead, because of what LeBron and Kobe and all these guys, Charles Barkley, Magic Johnson, all these guys can do, being themselves, opening up the game to others to come on in, maybe that black kid from those poor areas instead can fall in love with someone like a Nikola Jokic. Maybe fall in love with someone like a Luka Doncic. Maybe fall in love with someone like a French Tony Pokel, formerly of the San Antonio Spurs, who was coached by Greg Popovich. Maybe then he could fall in love with someone like a Steph Curry who came from an entirely different background as maybe that young lad who's growing up in that inner city or maybe someone who's in a trailer park in Appalachia who's living in that trailer park community. Maybe, oh my goodness gracious, he could fall in love with that black ball player and it could be all right. It could be good. So that's cool. So again, all of this ties into the fact that when I was watching the NBA all-star game this weekend. That's what really made me proud. And when I was really watching that NBA, the pregame, and they had Common come out, and that man was rapping, and they were talking about the heroes of Chicago. And it wasn't something to where, I don't think it was a plan. I don't think it was a scheme. I don't think it was an agenda be driven by saying, all right, when we talk about Chicago, fuck Mayor Daly, man. Fuck this white person. Fuck that white person. Fuck this Hispanic. Fuck this Asian. We going black, 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 black. Keeping it real, son. I mean, I don't think they were doing any of that. But guess what? Oprah, 
John Lee Hooker, all of these other things that maybe white folks out there in the suburbs of Chicago, the suburbs of, uh, of, of, of Reno, Nevada, of Seattle, Washington, maybe they don't know about. And maybe because of that, that young kid right now who's watching that game, they want to know a little bit more about some of those guys that they were seeing. Maybe that eight-year-old who didn't watch Dwayne Wade play, maybe he wants to know a little bit more, watch some YouTube clips about Dwayne Wade. And because of that, that leads to the fact of the situation what's going on with his daughter. And maybe that can lead to him understanding him. Maybe that can lead to him being more educated. Maybe that can lead to him being more tolerant. Maybe that can lead to him moving toward being a leader. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? But damn it, it's worth a shot, ain't it? It can't hurt, can it? So, yeah, I was very proud of the NBA, man, especially that especially that lineup. A couple of them, when Common was talking about the lineup changes, man, or the lineup, when he was talking about the starting lineup and the starting five, and he was naming all them. A couple of them, I was kind of like, okay, now I wonder how he's going to do, I wonder how he's going to come up with Siakam. I wonder how he's going to come up with Adenakupo. Is he going to come up with Giannis? What's, how is he going to make that rhyme out of that? How is he going to make that rhyme out of Jokic? But he was great, man. He was great. So, you know, when we're speaking about the NBA, the man who speaks about the NBA stands amongst the tallest. The man who does this is from the Washington, D.C. area. His name is Wendell Wallace. I can go on with my rhyme. I've got plenty of time. And when I do this, you know it ain't a crime. Because at the age of one, my life begun. At the age of two, I was doing the do. At the age of three, I was rapping naturally. And at the age of four, I was rapping some more. At the age of five, my beat was alive. And at the age of six, I started to mix. At the age of eight, my rap was real great. And at the age of nine, I think it was time to get on the street and say my rhyme. So I got in my Porsche. I was DC battle to say my raps in Georgetown. I got on the street. I moved away to Saps. Then I started to say my raps. Other MCs, they would have to stop. Especially when I waved and pop. People all over would gather around. The CB spin on the ground. People all over gather around. I said the CB spin on the ground. I'm just, I used to be in a rap group back in the day, back in the, when I was a C, was it CBS Sports. No, it wasn't the CBS crew. Cool Breeze, Cool Breeze Scratchers. Me, Mikkel, Hayden, Steve, Kevin Gray, the guy who I still miss. Haven't seen that guy now going on 40 years. One of my best friends at the time from Chicago. Well, no, he was from Detroit. But yeah, man, the CBS crew. At the age of nine, I started rapping. And that's when great things started to happen. I was seeing my raps all over town from sunup till sundown. Me and MC would battle all day long. And of course, I'd win with a nasty song. And then after an easy win, I'd run the ball in the gym. But this life I couldn't bear because the money wasn't extraordinary. I knew my life had a little bit more. So I turned my attention to the hardwood floor. Of course, I made the varsity team. <laughs> Because my game was so supreme. I knew basketball would bring me fame because I was averaging 43 points a game. But I thought my performance was the pits until I got 500 scholarships. I was, I was thinking about being NBA bound until I decided on Georgetown. I was an idol among my peers being the MVP for straight years. I knew the NBA would be lots of fun. That's why I was chosen number one. All the NBA teams, they were partakers until I finally decided on the LA Lakers. $70 million a year. That's what I need. So they made my contract guaranteed. I was the highest paid on the staff. Until I broke my leg in half. So I took my dollars and my cents. And the next day I announced my retirement. So here I am. NCA spending my money all the day. But you know this life I couldn't bear. I had to see if my talent was extraordinary. I knew I could rap. And I knew I could jones. So I started practicing on the microphone. After I knew my raps could give concussions. I walked on down to Dynamite production. So here I am. Just doing the do. And listen to us. The CBS crew. Yeah. 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 Eat, take that Rockham. No I'm joking. But that was back in the day, man. So I don't know how I got 
off the rails and started rapping. But uh, yeah, you should have heard my one about. You should have heard my one because I was a storyteller. You should have heard my one where I was rapping about. Uh, what did I rap about? It's been so long ago. I mean, I was doing this stuff when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, what was I rapping about? I'm rapping about I became president of the United States and I was dating Ola Ray. For those who don't know who Ola Ray is, think Michael Jackson thriller video, the girl that he was with. That was the original Halle Berry for the black community. I'm sorry. But um, at least for my generation, Ola Ray was, whoo, good Lord have mercy. So thinking about drinking a bottle of wine, I knew that she would have to be mine. But I said, there's no need to be alarmed. I just went her over with my super charm. So I moonwalked over. Nicely it can be. I memorized rap number 43. At first, my raps might sound a little sour, but after a while, I had it under my power. So without hesitating like a jerk, I said, let's go to my household and get right to work. So I remember I was a great rapper. Um, I was doing movies. I met this chick, Ola Ray. We slept together. I got bored. Then I wanted to become president of the United States, so Camp David was for the taking, so I'll just move out Ronnie Reagan. Um, let me see, I said, President, you don't know how, President, you ain't got the hat because President, you don't know how to rap or something like that. So basically, I became President. Uh, uh, Russia ticked me off, so I put in the nuclear bombs, and it was me, Denise, of the Cosby Show, Lisa Bonet. So we're up there chilling on Mars just by ourselves because I destroyed the planet Earth. That was my rhyme. Wonderful, wasn't it? Wonderful. How did I get on this? How did I get on this? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's talk about the NBA, shall we? Let's do it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us, a lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports, one more thing about the All-Star Game, which I forgot to mention because I went off on my rapping tangent, uh, Turner Sports re- reported that the coverage of Sunday's NBA All-Star Game simulcast on TNT and TBS, they drew an average of 7.3 million viewers, an 8% increase over last year's game. And that made it also the night's most watched program on all the cable TV programs. And overall, the pregame coverage on TNT averaged 6.3 million viewers overall, which was up 19% from last year. And hey, look, you know, Kobe Bryant had a lot to do with it. And you were wondering what the NBA was going to do to honor Kobe. So that was also thrown into the mix. And one of the reasons why maybe the the uh, coverage or the Ratings of the game were higher than normal, but I again, I just thought the NBA was absolutely fantastic. They did a wonderful job of the whole festivities. Way to go, Alvin Sil- Adam Silver in the boys. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, we've got 30-something games left to go in the NBA season. Everybody talks about the NBA All-Star game being a halfway point of the season. No, we're coming down mainly the home stretch. 31-something games left. Most teams have played around 55 games. If you take a look at the Eastern Conference standings, you got the Milwaukee Bucks at 46-8 and eight in the Eastern Conference. The Toronto Raptors are second, 40-15. and 15. The Boston Celtics, 38-16. and 16. The Miami Heat in fourth place, 35-19. and 19. The Philadelphia 
76ers, whose games I'm watching, whose game I'm watching right now in the background as they're going into overtime against the Brooklyn Nets. They are sitting at 30, 34 and 21. The Indiana Pacers, 20, uh, 32 and 23. Brooklyn standing at 25 and 28. And Orlando, 24 and 31. Now, on the outside looking in, so I just mentioned basically the teams that are contending for the playoffs. The outside looking in teams, the Washington Wizards are 20 and 33. The Chicago Bulls, shit, are 19 and 36. And, Chicago, and the Charlotte Hornets are 18 and 36. And of course, the rest, which is the garbage of the Eastern Conference, the Detroit Pistons, 19 and 38, the New York Knicks, 17 and 38. Oh, Spike, 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 Spike Lee. Damn. Atlanta Hawks, 15 and 41. Lloyd Price, jeez. And the Cleveland Cavaliers, who just fired their coach. <laughs> well, they didn't fire their coach, but John Beeline quit. They are 14 and 40. So if you take a look at the contenders in the Western Conference, the Lakers are standing atop. The Western Conference, 41-12. and 12, The Denver Nuggets, 38-17. The LA Clippers, 37-18. and 18, The Utah Jazz, their record is 36-18. and 18. Uh, One, two, three, four. Fifth place in the Western Conference are the Houston Rockets. They are 34-20. and 20. The others include the surprising Oklahoma, Oklahoma City Thunder at 33-22. and 22. The Dallas Mavericks staying record, 33-22. and 22. The surprising... Memphis Grizzlies, 28 and 26. The Portland Trail Blazers, 25 and 31. The San Antonio Spurs, 23 and 31. And then the rest, we have the New Orleans Pelicans, the return of Zion, 23 and 32. The Phoenix Suns, 22 and 33. The Sacramento Kings, 21 and 33. The Minnesota Timberwolves, 16 and 37. They're god awful. And the Golden State Warriors, your defending Western Conference champions at the bottom. 12 and 43. So when I take a look at these teams and I take a look at the situation here on the podcast, Wendell's World of Sports, with me, Wendell Wallace, thank you. You take a look at the Eastern Conference. The Milwaukee Bucks are clearly the best team in the East, and not. You can make a strong argument that they're possibly the best team in the league. Have a six and a half game lead over the surprising Toronto. You know how I notice how many times I said surprising when we speak about these teams, whether it be the Oklahoma City Thunder, when we're talking about the Toronto Raptors, whether we're talking about who else? The Memphis Grizzlies. A lot of surprise teams out there, but Toronto is one of the most surprising. But I digress. Six and a half game lead Milwaukee has over Toronto for the best record in the Eastern Conference. They have a four and a half game lead over the LA Lakers. For the best record in the league. And when you have the best record. And you have the best player in the league. You have a 12 point differential. In terms of the scoring margin is concerned. Yeah you should be considered highly. Likely to come out of the Eastern Conference. To win the Eastern Conference. And vie for the NBA championship. As it looks like the Philadelphia 76ers. Have pulled their head out of their asses. In the second half. And has come back to defeat the Kyrie Irving West. Brooklyn Nets 113-104 and now the Philadelphia fans can stop booing but um, getting back to what I was talking about yeah I mean we're talking about a situation where coming off of last season's Eastern Conference final loss to the Raptors it would be it would be interesting right now because the Milwaukee Bucks have an opportunity to win 70 games and you want to keep this motor running and the difference I think between a lot of the other teams that were vying for these types of lofty marks in terms of win-loss records are concerned is the fact that no one is killing themselves in terms of minutes played for the Milwaukee Bucks. When you think about Giannis having the highest 
minutes per game, and they're speaking about him somewhere around 31 minutes because of the fact a lot of times the Milwaukee Bucks are blowing folks out, even though they lost to Indiana just be, before the All-Star break when Giannis wasn't playing. This is a situation where they can do some type of load management in terms of not having to run out their players and try to play 36, 38, 40 minutes, save those types of minutes on a consistent basis for the playoffs. There's an opportunity because of the depth and because the depth and because of the Eastern Conference that the Milwaukee Bucks could go for 70 games and do it naturally just by continuing to play the way that they're playing, continuing not to tweak anything, not to quote unquote, maybe do something else that could, that could get them on the avenue to go for 70, but might take away from what they're trying to do as far as winning a championship is concerned. You can go ahead and get that done. Again, Giannis Adenokupo, he's come back even better than he was last season when he won the MVP. He's averaging 30 points a game, 13 and a half rebounds, five, six assists per game. He played in 48 of the 54 games so far this season, and he's averaging 31 minutes. Hello, thank you, and oh, by the way, he's still... While it's still a work in progress of him getting together that jump shot or getting together that three-point look, I think his willingness to take that shot. Now, with three minutes left to go in a two-point game, game six or game seven, the deciding game in the playoffs, is Giannis still going to have that mindset to shoot those? We'll see. But right now, for what he's doing now in the regular season, he seems more willing to take those shots. And I think if you take a look, the only blemish on his game so far, and we've seen that, you know, his jump shot is still a work in progress, is a guy who's averaged anywhere between 73 and 77% from the free throw line. This season on 10 free throw attempts per game, he's only making 61%. So when he's dominant, when he's doing this thing in the playoffs, do the Boston Celtics, do the Philadelphia 76ers, do the... Toronto Raptors, do they do hacking Giannis? We will see. We will see. Can he make those perimeter shots in the playoffs? We will see. You know, Brian Windhorst, I listen to his podcast a lot because it's absolutely fantastic. Him and Tim Bohamps and Jackie McMullen and those guys, they do an absolutely fantastic, excellent job. Windhorst was speaking about, you know, team executives had told him that if you can be in a close game with Milwaukee with five minutes left, you have a good chance to win. So there's that there is that thought out there by team executives. And again, we can go over the record by the Milwaukee Bucks. We can take a look at the point differential. We can take a look at the improvement of Adenokupo. We can take a look about the minutes that's being played in terms of the way that they're not killing their rotation players during a regular season. We can talk about Milwaukee's dominance, but there's still this notion out there from teams, team executive players, that you know what, because of Giannis's lack of an outside shot because of Adenokupo's lack of a three-point shot that what's going to happen? What's the mindset going to be again when it's going to be a close game? Because when you're blowing people out, when you're having Adenokupo and the other rest, uh, starters rest for eight, nine, ten minutes in the fourth quarter because you've already blown the team out, well, when you get into the playoffs, it might not happen in the first round, maybe not happen that much in the semifinal round, but when you get into that Eastern Conference final playoff round, and now these games are tight, and now these games are going to be coming down to one or two possessions. When you haven't had a season of playing like that, what's it going to be? And these teams and these executives and these coaches and these scouts and some of these players are whispering, you know what, we don't fear the Milwaukee Bucks like we should 
if you take a look at their dominance. We still don't fear. This isn't a situation when the Lakers were rolling with Kobe and Shaq or where the Spurs were rolling with Duncan and Ginobili and Parker or where the Heat were rolling with LeBron and Wade and Bosh. It's not that. We take a look at that record, and despite Milwaukee's dominance, we still feel once the playoff time comes that we have a decent chance, and we have a pretty good chance, which means that they are more built for the regular season than they are the playoffs. And when you take a look at the way Milwaukee is built, when you take a look at their depth, that's one of the things I'm going to be interested to see what Mike Budenholzer is going to do once the playoffs start. I mean, we have guys on this team right now, when you're speaking about the Milwaukee Bucks, you have guys on this team right now that are playing anywhere like like 18 minutes. You know, you have guys playing 17, 18, 20, 24, 21 minutes. You have like nine or 10 guys who are doing that. So what's going to be happening when you have, again, 10 players averaging at least 18 minutes per game? Once the playoffs start, you're going to have to cut down that rotation. You're going to be playing guys a seven to eight man rotation, maybe nine at the very most. Which player who's averaging 20, 21, 19 minutes a game is going to be a DNP CD. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be Devontae DiVincenzo, who's been starting? Is it going to be Marvin Williams, the guy that they picked up from Charlotte? Is it going to be Sterling Brown? Is it going to be Kyle Korver? Is it going to be Pat Cunnington? Which one is it going to be? Cunnington was a was a guy who played during the playoffs. So is Budenholzer just going to say, you know what, we're going to continue what we're going to be doing and we're going to do what the Detroit Pistons did of the bad boys back in the day and go with a 9 or 10 man rotation when you had John Sally and you had Buddha Edwards and you had Vinny Johnson and you had Dennis Rodman coming off the bench. Or is that what you're going to do? Is that what Milwaukee is going to do? Can you buck contention, uh, conventional wisdom and play that way? Play in the playoffs the way you did as far as your rotations are concerned with like you did in a regular season, it'll be interesting. And if you speak, if you think about it, and we are thinking about it, and you're thinking about it on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with myself, Wendell Wallace, narrating, speaking, commentating, educating, entertaining. When you speak about what's going down with the Milwaukee Bucks, we're riding and dying with, with Eric Bledsoe. We have seen what Eric Bledsoe has been all about in the playoffs. During the regular season, Bledsoe, okay, we get it. We understand it. We know why Milwaukee gave him that contract extension. We know basically why Milwaukee basically said goodbye to Malcolm Brogdon when they decided to go ahead and give Bledsoe that contract because they had to pay Middleton. They had to keep money for Adenikupo, and they had to re-sign, uh, they had to re-sign uh, Lopez. So basically, they were saying goodbye to Malcolm Brogdon, who basically saved the bacon for Milwaukee a couple of times in the playoffs last season. When Eric Bledsoe started doing Eric Bledsoe in the playoffs type things, which was not living up to the potential, not living up to the promise, not living up to the degree that what he was playing during the regular season. Last season, Bledsoe averaged 16 points a game, shot 48% from the field, gave up five and a half assists per game. But then in the playoffs, those averages went from 16 points per game to 13 points per game, 48% field goal shooting went down to 41% field goal shooting. He shot 23% from the three-point line. And even in the Western, excuse me, in the Eastern Conference Finals against Toronto, he averaged 10 points on 29% from the field. 17% from the three-point line. Again, the Bucks don't have Malcolm Brogdon to bail them out this time. We don't know. George Hill had a good series. But still, are we going to count on George Hill to be that backup point guard? So you're going to have to put more faith. You're going to have to put more belief 
in the Eric Bloodsome. And I don't know what you can do because anything that he shows during the regular season, it's almost like, who cares? It's almost a wait-and-see proposition for the Milwaukee Bucks. Is Bledsoe going to be that guy at the point guard position for the Milwaukee Bucks that's going to give them that stabilizing force, that's going to let Giannis do his thing, that's going to be, he doesn't need to be the second-best player on that team. He doesn't need to be the third-best player on that team. For Eric Bledsoe, for the Milwaukee Bucks to get to the NBA final, for them to get revenge in the Eastern Conference Finals, whether they play Toronto or not, Eric Bledsoe is going to have to play a whole hell of a lot better because they don't have the luxury of a backup point guard that can come in and save their asses. So I'm going to be interested to see that. And it's really not just Eric Bledsoe last year. There's some questions about Adenokupo. There's some questions about Middleton, what they did in the Eastern Conference Finals. So everybody's speaking about, you know, what the... Milwaukee Bucks and the role players have to do for Giannis to convince him that he wants to stay in Milwaukee. Well, au contraire, mon frère. I would also say, and I'm not speaking about Rudy Gobert, it's common, but what I'm also saying is the fact that, you know what, man? Giannis is going to have to show the fact that, yeah, I'm the MVP, I'm a bad man, and I'm a really great basketball player, but also he's going to have to prove in the playoff that he can elevate his game. Because unlike Someone like a, a LeBron James who has a Anthony Davis. Someone like a Kawhi Leonard who has a Paul George. Someone like a Kyle Lowry who, does, who has a Pascal Siakam. Giannis is depending on Chris Middleton, who's nice. But really, is Chris Middleton that superstar that you're looking for? When you talk about winning championships, whether it's Tim Duncan with Tony Parker or Monty Ginobili, when you're talking about winning championships, the formula for winning championships. Even back in the day when you talked about Larry Bird being the megastar and Kevin McHale being the superstar, Magic Johnson being the megastar, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar being the superstar, Michael Jordan being the megastar, Scottie Pippen being the superstar, LeBron James being the megastar, Dwayne Wade being the superstar, Kobe Bryant being the megastar, Paul Gasol being the superstar, Kobe uh, Shaquille O'Neal being the megastar, Kobe Bryant being the pseudo-megastar superstar. Who, as we far as take a look at dynamic duos who won championships before, who is going to be that superstar for the Milwaukee Bucks? And, and we're speaking about putting Giannis in the megastar category, is he megastar material in the playoffs? We know he's a megastar when it comes to the regular season, but again, we heard what executives told Brian Windhorst Honest, or would Brian Windhorst relate to what team executives and scouts and players were speaking about to him when it's concerned the Milwaukee Bucks in the playoffs? Five minutes to go. They have a chance. What's up with that? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? What's going to happen? It's going to be interesting to see those questions being answered. Are the Milwaukee Bucks just a really, really good regular season team, or are they truly NBA champions? If they are truly going to be NBA championship material, Yes, Giannis is going to have to elevate his game, which I mean the fact that he's going to have to. I don't, I don't give a damn just the threat of Giannis shooting an 18-footer. Just the threat of Giannis rising up and shooting a 17, 18-footer when a guy's three feet off of him. He's going to have to take those shots. And if he misses the first one, he's going to have to take it again on the second time. If he misses the second time, he's going to have to do it on the third, and then the fourth, and then the fifth, and the sixth, and so on and so forth. You can't do what he did last year where Kawhi Leonard and those guys and Pascal Siakam were basically underneath the basket when Giannis got the ball at the top of the key and he wanted to drive 
in between four people with Serge Ibaka, Walt Leonard, Siakam, and Marcus Saul. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It didn't happen. It didn't work for him last season, and it's not going to work for him this season. So, as I'm extolling the virtues of how great the Milwaukee Bucks are, and while I think they are the favorite to make it out of the Eastern Conference to win the championship, I don't think that the margin is as big or the disparity is as big as the records and the point differential uh, it makes them out to be going toward the final the final push of the season. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, speaking about what's going down in the Eastern Conference of the NBA. Man, as I mentioned before, wasn't Toronto supposed to be in the back right now? Wasn't Toronto supposed to be rebuilding? Wasn't Toronto supposed to be doing what the Miami Heat did after they won the championship the first time with the duo of, of uh, Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal? Wasn't the Toronto Raptors supposed to be doing what the Dallas Mavericks did after they won a championship with a Dirk Nowitzki in 2010 or 2011? Weren't, those, weren't they supposed to be taking a step back? Weren't they supposed to be where the Golden State Warriors are right now in terms of their contendingship for the playoffs and for the championship? Wasn't, weren't they supposed to be trading away Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka and Marcus Saul and these guys to build around Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam. Wasn't that supposed to be the plan? And this was supposed to be a rebuilding year? Well, Yasai Ujiri said, man, fuck that. Kyle Lowry said, man, fuck that. Those guys are balling. Won 15 games in a row before the All-Star game, before the All-Star break. They lost that Thursday to the Brooklyn Nets before going into that All-Star break. But, man, those guys were rocking and those guys were rolling. And I mentioned before, they got the third best record in the NBA. My question is, okay, without that superstar, without that guy named Kawhi Leonard, how far can you go? Is Pascal Siakam going to be able to fit into that LeBron James role? Is he going to be able to fit into that superstar role? Is he going to be able to fit into that role? Is Kyle Lowry going to be able with his play to help him to where maybe he not might not reach to the, the degrees of what, Kawhi Leonard did for the Toronto Raptors last year, but because of Lowry and because of what he can do being a champion now, coming through in the clutch, maybe Siakam doesn't have to be as efficient. Maybe Siakam doesn't have to be as dominant. Maybe Siakam doesn't have to be as imposing as one of those all-time great superstars in the game that we have today going into the playoffs. A three-time champion like LeBron James. A two-time champion like a Kawhi Leonard. Maybe Siakam doesn't have to be that megastar that can lift those guys and make the Toronto, the, the uh, Raptor fans forget about Kawhi Leonard. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. Which one of those guys is going to be? What's one of those? Which one of those guys is going to be able to do it? Because Siakam won. I mean, this could be a situation where it wouldn't be shocking and it wouldn't be surprising and it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be disgusting if Siakam won most improved again. For the second season in a row, I don't think he's going to, but he's better this season than he was last season. This season, he's averaging 23.5 points per game, 7.5 rebounds, shooting 45% on 19 field goal attempts. I mean, this was a guy, and, and Toronto has been doing this, and we don't talk about Nick Nurse. Is Nick Nurse going to get some serious consideration? And we're talking about Lowry, Siakam, Marcus Sol, Norman Powell, Serge Ibaka, they have the third best record with all of these guys missing time because of injuries. 188 games between the names I just mentioned. I'll mention two of them again. Lowry, Siakam, Marcus Saul, 
Norman Powell, Serge Ibaka. These are all starter or, rot or rotation players. So Nick Nurse, a guy who should be getting serious consideration for Coach of the Year, along with Siakam, getting consideration for most improved player of, of, the, um, of the league. Lowry coming in averaging 20.7.5 rebounds per game. Championship experience on the team from last season when you speak about Fred Van Vliet, who's, who was really supposed to be the guy that was going to be making that transition. He was supposed to be the guy that was taking the Kyle Lowry spot. Well, he's averaging 18 points a game. The scoring average is normally 10. And he's coming and he's doing well. Serge Ibaka is averaging 16 points and 8 rebounds. Marcus Solid providing interior defense. Don't sleep on the Toronto Raptors. And again, it comes back to the duo of Lowry and Siakam. Are they good enough to win a championship? Are they good enough to stand up to LeBron and, and Antonio Davis? and Not Antonio Davis, but LeBron and Anthony Davis. Kawhi and Paul George. James Harden and Russell Westbrook. Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker. Giannis and Middleton. Simmons and Embiid. Where in that mix does Lowry and Siakam fit in the role players that will be around them? Where do they fit in that mix? How is that going to work? Again, they're going to have great home court. They're going to have great fan support. And they're going to have the championship experience from a coaching standpoint, from a starting standpoint, and from a bench standpoint. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do. Are they truly in Milwaukee's head? Can they get back and win the Eastern Conference? It'll be interesting to find out. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So, dogs, I'm glad that you could be with us. This is a team that just makes me, if I had hair, well, I do have hair, but not much. But if I had hair, this team would just make me pull it out. If you're a Philadelphia 76er fan, yeah, I think you got booed too much too often. But this team just must drive you nuts. If you're a, if you're a diehard Philadelphia 76er fan, it's like, man, what the fuck? They're the best team. You know the Philadelphia 76ers are the best team in the NBA when they're playing at home? They're the biggest enigma in the league because when they're at home, they played all their games at home they can win the NBA championship. They're 25-2 and two at home this season. They beat, beat both LA teams. They beat Boston twice. They beat Toronto, Denver, Milwaukee. Their only losses came to uh, Boston, I believe, Dallas. They're one of the worst teams on the road, though. They are New York Knicks level awful. They are Cleveland Cavalier awful when it comes to the road. They've had, they've had the Philadelphia 76ers. They've had only one, one win against a team with a 500 or above record on the road this season. So it's like, you know, you win three games on the road. Or me, I'm sorry, they win three games at home after losing four games on the road. They go into the All-Star break. They come back tonight. They play Brooklyn. They start off well. They fall asleep. The fans boo. They get pissed off. They come back and win the game in overtime. Their crowd cheers. They go back on the road. Who knows what's going to fucking happen? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's just a matter of, do these pieces that Elton Brand has put together that he's instructed Brett Brown to coach, do they fit? By themselves, it could kind of work. I mean, when you speak about Ben Simmons and Joel Bean and Tobias Harris and Al Horford and Jason Richardson and... By themselves, they're pretty good. Like, but I don't think put together, the puzzle put together, I don't know if it really matches because I spoke about it before on my other podcast. It comes down to shooting. It comes down to outside shooting. 
And they didn't go get themselves a J.J. Reddick. They didn't go get themselves a Terrence Ross. They, don't, they, they didn't go out and get themselves an Evan Fournier. They didn't go out and get any of those guys to help with the scoring, to help with the spacing. So now you've got two guys in Embiid and Simmons who you're looking to lead the team. One, I believe in Embiid, doesn't exert himself enough in the paint. He likes to sit out there and shoot jumpers and three-point shots. And you got a, got another guy in Ben Simmons who's a point guard who all he wants to do is pass and not shoot the ball. And when I say not shoot the ball, he makes Jason Kidd in his prime look like Kobe Bryant when it comes to shooting the basketball and it comes to wanting to shoot the basketball. Ben Simmons does not want to shoot ever unless he's right in front of the basket and he can dunk or put in the layup, which is great. But when you have Joel Embiid there or when you have Al Horford there, who's no longer starting, but still, it makes the pieces not work. When you have a jack-of-all trades like a Jason Richardson or a Tobias Harris, who are streaky outside shooters, who you can't rely on to be that knockdown shooter, then what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? So it's a team of really good parts, which really have a hard time fitting together if you're speaking about putting together a championship team, especially when you have Al Horford and Joel Embiid playing together. Well, then how are they going to do against some of these small ball liners? What are they going to do against, say, the Boston Celtics? Will they put in a lineup of Kimball Walker, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Gordon Hayward, and Marcus Smart. What are you going to do with the Toronto Raptors if they put in a situation where they have Pascal Siakam playing a small ball five because you can put in OG Ananobi along with Fred Van Vliet and maybe a Kyle Lowry. That might be a little bit too small, but when these teams want to speed up the game, if Joel Embiid is going to play like he plays on an inconsistent basis, then you're not going to be punished. These teams that are going to go small, maybe Milwaukee plays Giannis at the five. These teams are not going to be punished because Embiid is not exerting himself and not dominating like he should. I have said it before in the last podcast, and every time we talk about Joel Embiid, I will say it over and over again. This man, not Luka, not Giannis, not LeBron, not James Harden, not anybody else, the most dominant offensive force or maybe the most dominant player in the league should be Joel Embiid. He has the skills, he has the height, he has the talent, he has the potential to be the most dominant player in the league. Where everybody is talking about going small and everybody's talking about their centers being six foot six and six foot seven who can put the ball on the floor and shoot threes and do things off the dribble. Where there's a dearth of NBA talented big men, Joel Embiid should be taking advantage of that. He's seven feet one, he's strong, he's mobile, he's skilled but he doesn't have the effort on a consistent basis. He doesn't have the mentality on a, on a on a consistent basis to be that guy. And for Philadelphia fans, it must be extremely frustrating. Oh, and by the way, he also is not durable enough. I don't even know if Joel decided to dedicate himself to be that type of player that he could go a full, I mean, hell man, he doesn't even have to play 82 minutes. We can load 82 games. We can load management him to where he can play 68, 70 games. It'd be like, Joel, give me, we're going to get you a 70 games. All right. Our key is for you not to play 82. We'll rest you for 12, 70 games, max. Injury free, max, 70 games. Out of those 70 games, Joel, try to rip up the league and try to make these people Try to make these people wish that they were never born who's guarding you. 
give us that effort on 60 for 60 for 60 of those 70 games. The other 10, you can kind of coast and you can kind of take a break and you can kind of play like you kind of do a lot of the times, like, you know, half-ass and everything. Those other 10, you can do that. But guess what, man? You're going to be sitting out 12 because of load management, 10 games where you don't give a shit. Give us 60 games where you just want to fucking dominate. Give us 10 games where you just want to show that in the line of George Mikan and Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and... Moses Malone and Patrick Ewing and David Robinson and Akeem Olajuwon and Shaquille O'Neal and Artis Gilmore and Bob Lanier. I want to be part of that group. And not only do I want to be part of that group, I want to be a part of that group in terms of being the first first or second or third or fourth called in terms of who's the most dominant. I want to be Shaquille O'Neal dominant. I want to be Moses Malone back in 1982-83 dominant. I want to be... Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell dominant. I want to be Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dominant. I want to be that type of dominant. Give us that mentality for just for just 55 to 60 games, Joel. And if he did that, you watch the Philadelphia 76ers. And out of those 60 games, give us 32 of those games on the road and watch how much the road, road record improves for the Philadelphia 76ers. But he won't do it. He won't do it, and we're getting close to Joel Embiid's career to where is he more Lamar Odom, Rasheed Wallace in terms of him wanting to dominate rather than being someone like a a Kobe or a LeBron or a Killer Instinct type of guy? Is he more Lamar Odom than he is Manu Ginobili in terms of his passion and his desire and his dedication? Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. And I, what is the relationship between him and... Simmons and the core players because Tobias Harris, Jason Richardson and those guys, those guys fully know that man, we need you. We need you guys. We need you guys to play together. We need you guys to play harder. We need you guys to dominate. We can't do this. I, I you know, Tobias Harris, like I can't take the lead. Al Horford is telling them beat and Simmons. Look, I can't take the lead. I can't be the second best player on this team on a consistent basis and expect to win a championship. Jason Richardson is saying, I can't expect to be the first or second best player on this team. At, you know, half half of the games and expect us to win a championship. We need you guys to be the best players on this team, night in, night out, 82 games of the year, regardless of who's playing, regardless of who's load managing, the, the, regardless. We need you, man. We need you. And for whatever reason, whether it's chemistry, whether it's, I don't know what it is, those guys just seem to be an odd match. They're like Felix Unger and um, Jack Klugman and... Uh, Oh, the odd couple, whoever the shit was. But uh, it just seems that those guys just don't fit. And it's not a matter of them being jealous or it's not a matter of them not liking each other. This isn't this isn't Kobe Shaq. This isn't Stefan and KG. This isn't one of those deals. It's not that at all. This isn't James Harden and Dwight Howard back when those guys were playing in Houston. It's not that at all. It's just some weird dynamic, which I don't know. I don't know. So the Philadelphia 76ers, if they ever got it together... And the only shining, only hope that Philadelphia fans can have is that, man, hopefully, maybe praying that the light comes on and they dedicate themselves and they all look at each other and say, we're, we're too damn good to be playing like this. We're too damn good to be in the situation that we're in. We're too damn good to be in fifth place and looking at a possible playing on the road for the first round of the playoffs. We're too damn good. We're going to get serious. We're going to get it together. 
We're going to play the song Ashford and Simpson, Solid as a Rock, and we're going to get the job done. Through each mistake, I do each, whatever. So we're going to get it done. So, yeah, man. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what to do and what's the relationship between Philadelphia and the players and Brett Brown. I mean, how hard are you guys really playing for Brett Brown? Because you guys realize that if you lose in the first round or if you underachieve in the first round, he's gone, right? I mean, Joel, you realize that, don't you? Ben, you, you realize that, don't you? That basically you either do some things for real in the playoffs or else Brett Brown is gone and maybe you don't give a fuck. Maybe you don't care. But I would be interested to see what that relationship is with the coach and the star players. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so doggone glad that you could be with us really quickly about the Boston Celtics, 38-16. and 16. What's the ceiling for this team going into the season? You know what? I take a look at what happened with Kimball Walker and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart. You know who I have to thank for that? And Brad Stevens. If I'm Brad Stevens, I go and I thank Greg Popovich. The improvements that Tatum and Brown and Smart and, and um, Walker, I go and I thank... Coach Price, Coach Wright, Coach Kerr, and Coach Popovich. Because it's no coincidence that these guys are having the best seasons when you're speaking about Smart, Tatum, and Brown, and Walker. There's no coincidence that those guys, the experience that they had playing for the USA team and getting that extra coaching from those great coaches, mainly great Popovich, that that didn't translate into them having much improved seasons going into this season. Now, a lot of other things have to do with that, just the natural maturations of their game and the subtraction of Kyrie Irving. So all of those things play into the role to where you're speaking about now Jason Tatum is starting now to live up to the lofty expectations that he was given when he came in and took it to the Cleveland Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference Finals and had a very good to excellent rookie season. Now Jason Tatum is back to being called 12-time Tatum and so apropos against the Los Angeles Clippers, man, that last game before the All-Star break, woo, that young man was balling, son, 48 minutes played in that double overtime victory over the Clippers at home, scored 39 points on 14-23 shooting, nine rebounds, played excellent defense, that's the 12-time Tatum, that's the cornerstone player, that's the franchise player that the Boston Celtics were looking for, not just this season, but also last season, but man, he was spectacular, first-time All-Star at the age of 21 so this season he's up averaging 22 points up from 15 points last season seven rebounds he averaged six last season he's averaging 38 points excuse me he's averaging he's shooting 38 percent from the three-point line on seven attempts on seven attempts per game and one of the things that the Celtics brass and the coaches were speaking about was he was taking way too many long twos last season and many people were pointing out the relationship that he had with Kobe Bryant and the workout that he was having with Kobe Bryant was one of the culprits to why he was shooting 21 or 20 footers and not 23 footers. Well, I tell you what, Jason Tatum has come into his own and he's playing great basketball. Marcus Smart, Marcus Smart is shooting threes at a, at a high clip. Jalen Brown has improved and he's having career highs all across the board. Gordon Hayward has come back now mentally from the injury that sidelined him, so he's playing much better basketball. So the Boston Celtics, man, what is their ceiling? How far can they go? Can they be a real threat to the Milwaukee Bucks? Kemba Walker's going to have to show because he's never been in the playoffs before with the with the uh, Charlotte Hornets 
where he's never been, really been in, in a, any high-state games as far as playoffs or anything when he was with the Charlotte Hornets. So it'll be interesting to see how that translates. But uh, the Boston Celtics doing well. Brad Stevens have recovered, has recovered from the awful season that he had last season, managing and working with Kyrie Irving and some of the other guys to get them ready to play. So, yeah, the Boston Celtics also will be interesting to see. I think that they can make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. I think that they can beat the Boston, uh, they can beat the Toronto Raptors. So we'll see. We'll see going into the playoffs if that's really going to be happening. So that'll take a look at the Eastern Conference. Let me take a break. Let me get up and dance. Hit the music. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Western Conference, man, when we speak about what's going down in the Western Conference of the NBA, it's all about the Lakers. It's all about the Clippers. It's all about L.A. It's all about Randy Newman. It's all about I love L.A. Lakers, 41-12, best record in the Western Conference, four-game lead over the Denver Nuggets for the best record in the West. So far this season, you can say that the Lakers have exceeded expectations. You remember the clusterfuck with the Los Angeles Lakers? Magic Johnson resigning from his post, Rob Palenka coming in, and they don't know what's going on with that with that bullshit, and Magic talking about tampering charges, and it was just a mess. It was just an absolute mess, but I give Palenka some credit, man. The team that he's put around both LeBron James and Anthony Davis for the short term is championship material, and LeBron James has bounced back this season. Many people predicted that he was going to come out like a guns a blazing but my thought was at 35 years old I thought that he would maybe do something like Amari Stoudemire remember when remember when remember when Amari Stoudemire went from Phoenix to he signed a free agent contract with the New York Knicks and it was kind of like well you know with his needs I don't know I don't know James Dolan I don't know about this well the first 20-25 games man it was Amari Stoudemire was killing it was absolutely positively killing it. And because he was killing it, he was rebounding, he was dunking, he was shooting. I mean, he looked like vintage Amari Stoudemire when he was with the Phoenix Suns. Unfortunately, after like 25 games of what he was doing, his knees said, fuck it, I'm out of here. And basically, Amari Stoudemire was never the same. He developed knee problems, and that was basically it. So basically, he said, look, I'm going to give the Knicks about 20 to 25 games of unbelievable play, and that's all my legs are going to be able to give you. And then I'm going to be done at the Amari Stoudemire who signed that five-year, $100 million contract. I didn't think LeBron James was going to fall off the map that quickly because LeBron James is a genetic freak who takes care of, who takes care of, care of himself. 
But I thought LeBron for the first, say, 35, 40 games was going to come out and he was going to be doing it all, man. He was going to be playing like 35, 36, 38 minutes a night that he was going to be shooting, he was going to be scoring, he was going to be defending, he was going to be doing all of them things. He was rejuvenated from, from not making the playoff last last season that he was going to come out and do a thing. And then he was going to pull a groin, he was going to pull an Achilles, he was going to hurt a wrist, he was going to do something to where he was going to be missing the next 10, 12, 15 games so far, so good. He has played, what, 51 of the 54 games. He's playing defense. He's averaging 25 points per game, 11 assists. He's leading, leading the league. He's playing 35 minutes a game. And he has a strong argument to say that he has been the MVP. I still give it to Adenokupo, but LeBron has been great. Anthony Davis, another guy who I thought, well, is this going to be a guy who's going to be dealing with nagging injuries, which is going to cause him to miss this game and this amount of time and that amount of time because of a sprained thumb, because of a bad knee, because of a shoulder injury, because of a bruised toe, because of a, you know, a bruised ribs or whatever. So far, so good with him. He's played in 46 at the 54 game for him, for Anthony Davis. That's great. And he leads the team in scoring and rebounding at 27 points and 10 rebounds. So he's also going to running for defensive player of the year. My, Concern a little bit, though, is what we're going to do outside of those two. Is Kyle Kuzma going to be able to step up and be that third guy to help out LeBron and AD? And if not him, who's it going to be? It's not going to be Dwight Howard. It's not going to be Danny Green. It's not going to be JaVale McGee. It's not going to be any of those guys. And people are talking about Darren Collison staying retired and not coming to the Lakers. I think with him as the starting point guard, that would have helped. But Darren Collison, even as someone as great as LeBron, is Darren Collison going to be that guy? That you're going to be banking on for them to win an NBA championship, for them to beat possibly a healthy Los Angeles Clipper team, maybe a Utah Jazz team? I don't know. I don't know. LeBron and LeBron and AD are going to have to stay rough and rugged and have to stay ready and have to maintain relatively health, healthiness, healthiness for them to uh, continue on what they're doing. So the three-point shooting, still somewhat erratic. KCP... Okay, you know, but Avery Bradley, you're going to be looking on him. LeBron James, you're going to be looking on him. Those are more streak shooters. I know Frank Vogel had implored Anthony Davis to shoot more threes, but here's a guy who's still shooting in the low 30 percentile when it comes to three-point shots. So moving forward, basically the thing is going to be, can the Los Angeles Lakers beat the Los Angeles Clippers? That's going to be the deal because the Clippers didn't make moves at the trade deadline to improve their team. You're speaking about Marcus Morris and Reggie Jackson. Now, I know there might be some hesitation with Marcus Morris, uh, the acquisition. I know there might be some eyebrow raising when people are saying that could be the acquisition, that could be the player that could do what, the, what Michael Thompson did for the Lakers back in 1986-87, what you know, that, that, that in-season trade, maybe what P.J. Brown did for the Boston Celtics when they won themselves their championship. But I will say this, because Marcus Morris is a guy, I mean, in crunch time against the Boston Celtics, he was there out there around the court. But I think in the structure that the Clippers have, they are looking for a guy who can make shots. They are looking for a guy that, who can play a little bit little bit of defense on LeBron. We're not lo looking for him to be a LeBron stopper. We're not looking for him to play major minutes guarding LeBron. But, I mean, hell, if he can give five to ten minutes of a game guarding LeBron, that takes that away. That takes that responsibility away a little bit from Kawhi, da uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, which leaves them more energy to do other things, such as scoring, rebounding, doing some other things, and not worry about dealing with that bull 
of a human being and the mega uber athlete known as LeBron James, one of the best basketball players, not the best basketball player, who's ever played in the NBA, still going strong at the age of 35, 17 years into the NBA. So I'm trusting the coaching of Doc Rivers and Ty Lue and such to get Marcus Morris to play within himself and to play within the team and not be that guy to where, uh, okay, LeBron, or okay there, uh, uh, Kawhi, don't worry, I got it. I'm going to take uh, AD off the dribble and go for an 18-foot fadeaway jump shot with the game tied in overtime in game six of the uh, Western Conference Finals. I don't think Marcus Morris is going to be allowed to do those types of things. He's going to be aggressive, and when you have an open shot, take it. Now, of course, the definition for an open shot between Doc Rivers and Marcus Morris might be a little bit different, but I think in the overall grand scheme of things that Marcus Morris is a plus for the Los Angeles Clippers moving forward along with Reggie Jackson. The one thing is with those two, you don't need, you don't need to rely on those guys to win basketball games. You could easily, if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, if Marcus Morris goes Marcus Morris like he was in Boston or Reggie Jackson thinks that he's in Detroit again and he's going to be that shoot first point guard that he was in Detroit and getting on everybody's nerves because of it, that Doc Rivers has no problem taking him out of the game and taking Marcus Morris out of the game and moving to another direction. So Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, you know, we talked about the load, load management with Kawhi, and if we didn't, well, let's talk about it now. Uh, the fact that uh, it's necessary. It is necessary. As I mentioned in another podcast, Kawhi's coming off a season before where he only played nine games. We saw him, despite having a excellent NBA postseason last season, a guy that was hobbling, a guy that was limping for a lot of that NBA season. You want the guy to be, speaking of Leonard, you want him to be as healthy as possible. And also when you're speaking about Paul George, another guy who is coming off of a shoulder injury work, which caused him to miss uh, portions of the regular season at the beginning. This is all just a slow grind to get those guys to be working together. And if they're right, and if they're right, that combination of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, is it enough to take on LeBron James and Anthony Davis if they maintain the level that they're playing at right now. It could almost be considered a wash. The home court advantage, there really is no home court advantage because both of those teams play at the Staples Center. If anything, even when the Clippers are going to be quote-unquote playing at home against the Lakers, that is going to be more of a Laker crowd, but that really shouldn't matter too much. LA has already lost. Uh, the Clippers have already beaten the Lakers two times this season, waiting for them to play one more time, so it's all about the other pieces. It's going to be all about Lou Williams and Montrez Harold and what the Lakers are going to try to do to exploit the Clippers' weakness, which is that they don't have that, that big man in the middle. I'll tell you one thing. If the Clippers could get either JaVale McGee, and yes, I said it, JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard to join that squad, to join their squad, then I think the Clippers would be in a much better situation to move on to the NBA Finals as a such. I think they are one of the co-favorites to win the Western Conference along with the Los Angeles Lakers. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So doggone glad that you could be with us. So you take a look at the other teams out there. You take a look at the Utah Jazz. You take a look at the Denver Nuggets. You take a look at the Houston Rockets. I like Denver, man. Denver is a team almost like the Toronto Raptors in the Western Conference in terms of, you know, they got a very good bench. They got a superstar. The Raptors have... Pascal Siakam, the Denver Nuggets have Nikola Jokic. They have a good squad around them. We don't know about the availability going forward of, um, of some of the players for the for the Nuggets. Jamal Murray being the main one. 
interested to see if Mike Malone, the head coach of the Nuggets, is going to put any type of faith into Michael Porter Jr. Maybe not for him to play big minutes during the playoffs, but I mean, hell, I think that this is a guy that could come in and help a team win a quarter. I think this is a guy who can come in in the second quarter, start the fourth quarter, and put some important baskets and, uh, you know, put some important points on the board for the Nuggets moving forward. But how is he going to be on defense? How is he going to relate and react to the intensity level of the playoffs? That'll be that'll be interesting to see. Utah, I mean, with Mike Connolly, what are we going to do with him? What are we going to do? And with the Houston Rockets, I mean, they're going small ball, small ball, small ball. Is that going to work against a team like the Los Angeles Lakers when they meet in the playoffs if they meet in the playoffs? So, those are the things that I'm going to be looking for. Really didn't go in-depth as much as I did in the Western Conference as I did in the Eastern Conference, but I just mainly think that, uh, you know, it's 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 bound to come down between the Lakers and the Clippers. I like the Nuggets. I like Houston. I like Utah as far as filler, but I think when everything is said and done, it's going to come down to the two teams in L.A. It's going to come down maybe not so much to Paul George, Kawhi Leonard versus LeBron James and Anthony Davis, but which supporting cast surrounding those teams are going to be the difference makers? I think basically Kawhi, George, is and um, the matchup between George and Kawhi versus LeBron and AD, that's going to cancel each other out. So mainly it's going to come down to guys like Rajon Rondo and Danny Green and Kyle Kuzma and those guys going up against, you know, Montrez Harold and Lou Williams and, Patrick Beverly of those guys. So more than the superstars, more than the all-stars, what's going to what's going to be the difference in which team the Lakers or the Clippers make it to the NBA Finals is going to come down to the role players and it's going to come down to the bench play. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Been speaking mainly about the NBA. For my next podcast, I'm going to put together tomorrow because the sun will come out tomorrow. Um, I'm mainly going to be saving. I wanted to really get into the John Beeline situation and you know, college coaches who, college coaches who go to the NBA because I can hear some of the old heads right now talking about, oh, you know, these NBA basketball players, these these pampered millionaires, blah, blah, blah. They don't like teaching. They don't like coaching. They don't like anything like this. I want to uh, address that matter. And also why, again, another example of why the NBA is so much a far superior league than college basketball. And if I was a hiring, if I did have to go the route of hiring a college coach, there's no way humanly possible that I would ever hire a highly successful college basketball coach from one of the powers. No way. No way. Mike Krzyzewski, Bill Self, 
uh, John Calipari, man, I would I would go far, 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 far away from coaches like that. I'll explain all that on my next podcast along with some other things. And getting back into some football with the uh, rule changing and everything. And with baseball coming up pretty soon, I will be discussing the Mookie Betts trade to the Los Angeles Dodgers and all of this nonsense with the Houston Astros stealing signs and everybody's upset and Rob Manfred's under the gun and LeBron James is tis tis tisking Rob Manfred and he's basically being treated like Roger Goodell by the by the by his by his folks and by those outside to know. So I'll be getting into all of that. Once the dust settles and clears and everything, I'll be getting into that. But I wanna end this podcast. You know, yeah, I'll also be getting into Georgetown basketball tomorrow. Also, lost to uh, Providence, but hey, we picked up a commitment in Kobe Clark, which I'm happy about. And you know, again, I mean, I love this team absolutely, absolutely love this team. Love the heart, love the passion, love the way they play for their coach. Love everything about this team. Love the coach that we've got. Me being a lifelong Georgetown fan, I could not be happier than. Um, what these guys are showing us under adversity and under difficult situations of how hard we play, how much we believe in each other, how much those guys believe in each other, the unselfishness. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And I think with those types of traits, Coach Ewing is building a strong, strong foundation for the upcoming near and future future. I know these jackasses are sitting there talking about Ewing should be having the Hoyas be in the NCAA tournament after two years or three years. I'm sorry, did you see that team in the last year under John Thompson? Did you see exactly what John, uh, what uh, Patrick Ewing was walking into and the fact that he went in just three seasons now, a situation where he could be going into the postseason twice? Could you tell me that if there, if you could tell me that this was the team Georgetown was going to have going into this season, what would be your expectation? Do you think this team would be anywhere near sniffing an opportunity to get into the NCAA tournament? Of course not. So this bullshit about Patrick Ewing can't do this and he can't do that from a lifelong diehard Georgetown basketball fan ride and ride and die, shut the fuck up when it comes to Patrick Ewing. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, those will be the things that I'll be discussing and my next podcast coming out in probably Monday, Tuesday of next week, somewhere around there. Because I want to be discussing the heavyweight championship of the world. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, the second time around. Uh, it's going to be something else on Saturday. All of, the, all of this hoopla and everything is almost over. February 22nd, they're going to get it on. The biggest fight. In at least, I say, 10, 15 years. This could be this generation's Riddick Bowe versus Evander Holyfield. And what I'm really interested in this fight, when we speak about the heavyweight division, and we speak about how it's almost been in hibernation for so long because Vladimir Klitschko, the Klitschko brothers, have basically, basically hijacked the heavyweight division, took it off American soil and took it over to Germany, where they fought a bunch of nobodies and nobody cared about the belt, no one cared about the championship outside of the European countries, bringing it back now for this fight. I'm interested to see exactly how it's going to do. I'm interested to see if it's going to live up to the hype. you got to remember, the first time that these guys fought, this wasn't the situation where it was like, oh, this is a big deal, this is a big fight. The only reason why Deontay Wilder fought Tyson Fury the first time was because they thought uh, Fury was, 
a has-been, and they thought that Fury would be something to where, you know what, it's going to be a good name on a resume to knock him out, to move forward for a potential matchup against Anthony Joshua. It could be undefeated versus undefeated. So basically, this was almost a situation where they were leveraging the... They were leveraging Fighting Fury as an opportunity for them to make more money because a name on that resume, you can bring to the negotiating table and say, this is the reason why when we fight Anthony Joshua, this is the reason why Deontay Wilder needs to make more money. Or if they bring their complaint to the public to the public, and they talk about, I can't believe Anthony Joshua is wanting this, and I can't believe he's trying to negotiate that. Don't you know that we beat this guy? Don't you know that we beat Tyson Fury? Don't you know that we beat this guy? We should be the one that should be getting the more money. We should be the one that should be deciding on where we need to fight. We should be the one that should be dictating the terms. So that was that's one of the main reasons why Deontay Wilder even decided to fight Tyson Fury the first time. It wasn't the only thing. But that was one of the main reasons why. So now you have a situation where it was just surprised everybody, man. I mean, it was almost like a situation where Riddick Bowe fought Andrew Galata. Remember that the first time? And Andrew Galata, if he didn't lose his mind and hit below the belt, would have won that fight over Riddick Bowe. And then they had that rematch. And now all of a sudden it's a big deal. It's the same thing, the similarity between the first Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder fight now heading to the rematch. Now heading into the second fight between these two. Who's going to be doing what? Can they live up to the hype? Can they live up to the expectation, which was the first fight? They're either going to have to match it or succeed it. Can they do it? Now we're talking about a situation where Tyson Fury has changed camps. Now he's going to a different camp, so he can put a little muscle behind those punches that he's throwing. And now he's talking about, you know what? I've got to knock Deontay Wilder out. Hey, man, you're entering the Shark Tank when you're talking about that, but I also understand what Tyson Fury is talking about. When you take a look at Deontay Wilder, and you take a look at that right hand that he has, and you take a look at the power that Wilder has in that right hand, I almost equated to Patrick Mahomes at quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. I almost equated to Stephen Curry shooting three-pointers for the Golden State Warriors when they were winning championships. I almost feel like Deontay Wilder's right hand is like a pitcher facing Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton with the bases loaded in Major League Baseball. What I'm saying is, is that you know that big right hand is coming. You know that explosion is going to be happening. You don't know if it's going to be happening in round one. You don't know what's going to be happening in round six. You don't know what's going to be happening if it's going to come up in round 12. You don't know. But you know that bad boy is coming. Just like just like what the Houston Texans felt. Just like what the San Francisco 49ers felt. Just like what the Tennessee Titans felt when they were pay- facing Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, we may be up 24 nothing. Yeah, we may be up 20-10. Yeah, we may be up 17-7. But guess what? You know what's coming. You know he's going to be. You know Mahomes is going to, and that offense is going to explode. When exactly is it going to explode? Is it going to be in the fourth quarter? Is it going to be in the third quarter? Is it going to be right before halftime? You know that we're not going to be slowing down. You know that we're not going to be shutting down Patrick Mahomes. Same thing with Steph Curry. Yes, Steph Curry might have missed six, seven, eight, three-pointers in a row, but you know he's going to get hot. You know that you have to respect that. You know that when he's 35 feet away and he goes for the pump fake, that you have to get out there. You have to close out quickly. You have to close out aggressively. And you have to go for that shot fake. Because you know Steph Curry 
in his prime when he was winning championships with the Golden State Warriors back in the day a few years ago, you know that he's only one three-point shot made away from exploding and ruining your season, ruining your game, ruining your psyche. Same thing with Giancarlo Stanton, man. You know, and Aaron Judge. Man, Aaron Judge could look foolish three times in his previous plate appearances. But you know what's coming. You know that if you hang a curveball, you know if you throw a fastball down the middle, you know that if he connects with that pitch, you know that that ball is going to travel 400-plus feet, him and Stanton. So you know it's coming. Same thing with the right hand of Deontay Wilder, man. So if you're Tyson Fury... I can't box and play prevent defense. I can't go out there, dance around, run around, and box and do my thing like I did in the first fight because I know sooner or later I'm going to get caught. And I'm not I'm not confident that if he gets caught the same way that he got caught in the first fight in round 12, that he gets up again. And not only gets up, has a strong possibility to win that round. I'm not quite sure. And the way Tyson Fury is, is talking... He's not quite sure. He's not sitting up there talking about, oh, what, so what, man? Deontay Wilder, he knocked me down. But yeah, you saw how quickly I got back up. You know, Tyson Fury isn't talking smack about him getting up. That Tyson Fury's punch wasn't that hard, that he was overrated as far as the puncher is concerned. And when I hear him talk about, I'm going to get back into the gym and I'm going to try to change or I change trainers so I can go ahead and and I can put more power into my punches so I can get that mentality so I can go out there and look for the knockout. I don't think Tyson Fury is bullshitting when he's talking about I want to knock out Deontay Wilder in two rounds. I don't think that that's a that's, that's, he's bullshitting at all because he knows that, you know what, I got to get this guy out of here because the longer I stay in this fight, the more susceptible I am to get hit by that right hand. And if I get hit by that, if I get hit by that right hand, If I get hit by that power punch, good night, Irene. The fight is over, and I am D-O-N-E gone. So, yeah, man, I take a look at at Fury. He's coming a lot heavier than what he did in the first fight. To me, he's going to be looking to be more aggressive. And with Wilder, that's what he's got. Wilder's got that right hand. That's the only thing that he's got. He doesn't have great boxing mechanics. He doesn't have great skill. He's not... He's not a natural boxer. He's not a natural fighter. I said this before. This is a situation. This fight is a fight between, this fight is basically between a boxer by birth against a boxer by necessity. And what I mean by that is Fury is a boxer. Fury was born to box. He comes from a family of fighters. His father was a bare knuckle and unlicensed boxer and then a licensed fighter. I mean, he's had family members who are boxers. I mean, this was the guy who went through the amateur ranks. This was the guy from probably the time that he was a baby, probably from the time that he was a youngster. He was thinking about fighting. He was thinking about boxing. He didn't want to do anything else. He wasn't thinking about playing other sports. He was, his concentration, as far as sports is concerned, was solely dedicated to fighting. So he learned the fundamentals. He learned how to be a fighter from the young age, and he took it from there. When I say Deontay Wilder, this guy is a boxer fighter by necessity. The only reason why he got into boxing was because of the payday, of because of the financial obligations, the financial situation that he, that he was in. This was a guy whose first love was football and basketball. 
This wasn't a guy who grew up loving the game of boxing or the, the, the fight game. This wasn't a guy who grew up in the amateur ranks. This wasn't a guy who participated in the Golden Glove. This wasn't a guy who did all those types of things. This guy wasn't going to the gym and sparring and training and being on the heavy bag and the speed bag and sparring when he was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. This was a guy who was working at a supermarket. He had a daughter. His daughter was born with a congenital disease. And this was a guy who said, you know what? What I'm doing right now, I ain't going to be able to make it financially. I need to do something to take advantage of this uber athleticism that I have, the strength that I have, the athleticism that I have. What am I going to do? I can't do football. I can't do basketball. I'll go into boxing. So that's how Deontay Wilder came into boxing. It wasn't because of some type of love that he had for the sport. It was out of necessity. And normally, when you take a look at situations like that, and you can tell, Okay, yeah, the resume is there with Wilder, with the Olympics and everything like that. Look at the man's fight. The man is very limited as a boxer, but the one thing that he has, the one thing, the one thing that he has is that right hand. And that is the equalizer to everything. That's the fact that he had the lack of fundamentals, the, the lack of just the, just the, 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 the way of fighting itself. And normally in a situation like that, I would say because of that, Fury would win. And I think Fury has a good chance to win. But because of that right hand, I think that Wilder is going to knock this guy out. And I think he's going to do it in like around seven. I think I'm, I'm, going, to give, I'm going to give, I think Wilder is going to win by a knockout. I'm going to give him round six. I'm going to call a round six knockout. And that's what he's going to, if, if, if Fury is going to try to catch this guy, We'll see how the chin of Deontay Wilder is being hit by a guy 270 pounds. And if he's going to get into that lion's den, and if he gets, and if he can't, if, if Fury can't knock him out within the first three or four rounds, then what does that say? Does he go back to boxing and does he stick, does he stay away? We don't know. And also, we have to take a look. You know, Fury's last fight, and this may be one of the main reasons why he changed trainers. One of the main reasons why is because he looked so awful in his last fight against Otto Walden. He didn't look impressive at all. If it wasn't for this mega event that Vegas is going to be putting on, you think I think that fight versus Walden would have been stopped because of the cut that he had. But hey, he sauntered through and got it done. But, man, I... I, I think that basically, I don't know if this is, I'm interested in watching the fight. And I'm going to watch this fight. So I'm, I'm not up here poo-pooing the fight like, oh, this is going to be this and this is going to be that. I just don't think it's going to live up to the expectations of the first fight. Number one, I don't think it's going to go 12 rounds. Number two, I, hell, I, hell no, I don't think it's going to be a draw. And I think it's going to be a decisive knockout for Deontay Wilder. Because I think in Fury's fury to try to knock this guy out, he's going to leave himself open. Now, I think that there could be, if, could there be a way possibly where Fury can mix in some boxing and some fighting to go for that knockout, to be responsible with that knockout, and yet still be cautious, not get too overly aggressive? But then again, in the back of his mind, he also has to be thinking, can I last for 12 rounds? Because losing five, six, eight, nine, ten 10 rounds, that doesn't bother Deontay Wilder at all. I mean, that's not going to change his game plan. He's not going to switch up. There's only one way Deontay Wilder fights. 
And that's looking for that knockout. So there's no adjustments that's going to be made for Deontay Wilder. So we know what we're going to be getting with Deontay Wilder. Tyson Fury knows the game plan of Deontay Wilder. It's just a matter of, can I survive for 12 rounds if I have to? And if I have to, I'm going to have to try to knock him out early because my fear, and this might be the thinking of Tyson Fury, is my fear is the longer that I'm in this fight, the better chance I have to get hit by that right hand. And if I get hit by that right hand, I'm either going to be knocked out or I'm going to be set up to eventually be knocked out in a, in a short time later. So I'm calling for Deontay Wilder. KO, round six. You know, I was thinking about this. Hear me out for a sec. What is the impact this fight is going to have? Not, 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 not on the sport of boxing itself, but just overall in the fight game. What does this mean? Really, what does this mean? We take a look at you know, the biggest trilogies in boxing history, and this is nowhere near Ali Frazier. This ain't Sugar Ray Robinson, Jack, Jake LaMotta. This ain't Ali Ken Norton. I mean, hell, is it Holyfield versus Bo? Is it, it ain't Sugar Ray Leonard versus Roberto Duran? It's not Manny Pacquiao versus Eric Morales. And I'm already thinking, I'm already speaking about trilogies because they're already contractually, contractually obligated to fight for a third time. Who knows if that fight's going to happen? Let's say, for instance, if Wilder knocks him out in round four, knocks him cold, do they fight again? But then again, if it's a situation where, I mean, we take a look at someone like a Canelo and Triple G fight, a fight where after 24 rounds, we didn't know exactly who won that fight. I mean, could this shock and surprise all expectations and we go to another close fight? In terms of 12 rounds and whether Fury wins or whether Wilder wins, the, the public is clamoring for one more time. Who knows? Who knows? Again, something tells me that because of the politics and boxing, this might be the last time that we'll see Fury and Wilder step into the ring together. So we're talking about possible trilogies. We don't even know. So for the impact of the sport, what does it mean? Compared to MMA or the UFC, what does this fight mean? And I'm not talking about the hardcore fans. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that that, that Mexican American who's from the uh, who's from the streets of Boise, Idaho, who moved down to Las Vegas, Nevada, who's working in a nutrition store and wants to and it feels that he's the biggest fight fan who ever walked the face of the earth. I'm not talking about that fight fan. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about the fight fan who might know only Floyd Mayweather, Canelo Alvarez, and Manny Pacquiao. He might not know a Terrence Crawford. He might not know an Errol Spence. He might not know a Danny Garcia. He might not know any of these other fighters. He might not know. He might not listen to a podcast when it comes to boxing. He might not know. He might be just that casual fight fan who will go watch a fight when it's when it's a big time event. But he's not going to be turning in, tuning into Showtime. He's not going to be, you know, tuning into Fox to watch the the fights on television and such. For a fight like this, for a fight like Wilder and Fury, for the non-hardcore boxing fans, this might be maybe one or two boxing matches that these guys or these gals or whoever might take the time to either buy the pay per view or go somewhere to watch the fight. This might be the only time they do this. What type of impact can this fight have on the overall sport, the overall fight game itself? It'll be interesting. I don't know. I have no idea. 
If it matches the hype of the first fight, maybe. But what I'm predicting, I don't know what type of huge impact that it has. I don't know if it can have an impact if, say, for instance, Wilder knocks him out within six or seven rounds. We take a look at, say, for instance, after this, where does boxing go? After this, what matchup does boxing have to pull in the non-hardcore boxing fans? No, no, man. I'm not talking about you. I'm not talking about the fight fans who are going to be sitting there watching every fight that there is. I'm not talking about you. I'm, ta- I'm asking you this question. What boxing match, what two fighters are they going to put together to bring in the non-hardcore sports fan to watch a fight, to buy a pay-per-view, to grow the sport? The guy who might not know who Terrence Crawford is. The guy who might not know who the, who, who, uh, who might only know Canelo Alvarez and Triple G or Manny Pacquiao. What are we going to do? Who's going to be next? I mean, I'm sorry. For the hardcore fight fans, the possibility of Terrence Crawford fighting Errol Spence, if Errol Spence is okay after his car crash, that gets me excited. That gets me dancing. That gets, that gets me wanting to get up and get down and do the James Brown. That makes me want to get up and do another rap song. You know, that's what I'm talking about. But for the non-hardcore fight fans, did that move the needle? Will that move the needle to, say, replace what they see in MMA? Because you take a look at the MMA ledger for what could be a really good fight to attract, to attract the non-hardcore fight fans. You got some guy named Conor McGregor. You could put him in there against Khabib. Or you could put him in there against Mavidal. And people are going to be interested. You're going to put that... You're going to put that in front of ESPN. You're going to put that in front of that advertising machine. And they can make that happen. And they can make that have a million plus pay-per-views. You can put John Jones versus Stipe Miocic. You can put Miocic versus Daniel Cormier 3. You can put Jones at Cormier 3 at heavyweight. Bring that over to ESPN. And they can put that into that machine. They can put that into that that, 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 that house that they have over there. And they can bring it out. And they can have it become a million pay-per-view buy. Who in boxing can do the same thing? Who? Lomachenko? Who is Lomachenko going to fight that ESPN can take and say, okay, we can turn this into a million pay-per-view buy? What boxer out there can bring in 800, 900 pay-per-view buys? Let's say, for instance, this does a million pay-per-view. Fury, Wilder 2. Let's say this does a million pay-per-view buys and Wilder knocks him out in the second or third round. What does that mean? Does he have the bump? Is he all of a sudden now, does he take the reign last left by Mike Tyson? The last heavyweight that really captured our imagination was Mike Tyson. It wasn't Lennox Lewis. It wasn't Evander Holyfield. It wasn't Vladimir Klitschko, the last guy who really defined what we think the heavyweight champion is all about was Mike Tyson. And that guy hasn't been around in almost 20 years. Does this fight, if, say, for instance, Deontay Wilder wins because he is the American, does this guy now become that guy who can catapult the sport and elevate the sport? Because right now, it's being lapped by MMA. Right now, MMA, because of the organizations, because of other things, politics and others, because the best fight the best for the most part in MMA, unlike boxing, MMA is far ahead in terms of popularity. 
in terms of notification, in terms of people noticing it, in terms of the non-fight fans and what they prefer. Can this fight, especially if Deontay Wilder wins, wins in spectacular fashion, wins in a knockout? Because let me tell you something, man. Outside of the knockout, outside of Deontay Wilder, Wilder hitting you and putting you to sleep, Deontay Wilder is not an attractive fighter. Deontay Wilder does not have the attractive fighting style. He's lumbering. He's almost amateurish in some of the, in, in some of his punches and some of the. You know, it's, 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 he's not a pretty fighter. He don't float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. You know, he he doesn't have that Evander Holyfield quality. He doesn't have that Mike Tyson type of quality. You know what I'm saying? Does a win against Tyson Fury give? Wilder, that platform. Give Wilder now the opportunity to elevate that sport, despite some of his shortcomings. And what happens if he loses? Is anybody really going to be interested to see Wilder versus Fury 3? All other things are going to be interested in answering in the next couple of days, man, when we take a look at this. But again, I'm calling for the knockout, Deontay Wilder over Tyson Fury in round six. In round six. And I've been pretty good about my predictions. Because I remember speaking to a certain somebody who's the end all the be all of fight of fighting, which he claimed to be, and I told him, I said, Your boy is gonna quit. Julio says Julio Cesar Chavez, Jr. The biggest joke, the biggest embarrassment to boxing that we've got going right now. I told this man, I told this Mexican man who's Chavez Jr. being this man, I told him, I said, Why are you cheering for this man? Why are you backing this man? I know that you love this father. I understand this. I love Julio Cesar Chavez too. But man, his son's a joke. His son's a clown. Why are you wasting your energy? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you wasting your evening following, cheering for this joker? Falling for this disgrace? Yeah, I know he's Hispanic. Yeah, I know he's Mexican. Yeah, I know you're Mexican. Yeah, I know you got to keep it real. I know you got to keep it 100. I know you got to do it for the neighborhood. I know you got to do it for the community. I know you got to be there for your Mexican fighter. I know this. I understand all this. I get it. But man, that would be the equivalent of me wanting to go out there and cheer Adrian Broner. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not cheering for that joker. I'm not making any time to watch that fool, that disgrace, that embarrassment, that clown, that dope. I'm not doing any of that nonsense. Why are you doing the same thing with Julio Cesar Chavez Jr.? Put that man away. And I told him, I said, you're wasting your time. He's going to quit round, what I say? He's going to quit round six. I said, he's going to quit. Oh, man, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Fake fight fan. This, that, the other. This, that, the other. I can't believe you're not watching the fight. You, you're supposed to be a fight fan. You ain't nothing. You ain't shit. This, that, and the other. I said, I'm not wasting my time watching that, man. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm not going to give my energy, my effort, my time, my eyes, my viewing, my attention to that clown. He's unprofessional. He's a joke. He's a dope. And he will quit by round six. Quit. And what did Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. do? My man quit. Your man quit, A.V., he quit, just like I said he would. Q-U-I-T. Damn near caused a riot with your brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and cousins and uncles and second cousins and mother-in-laws and father-in-laws. He quit in front of y'all. Quit. 
quit like the dog that he is of a fighter. Quit. So, yeah, there you go. Um, um, <laughs> quit. <laughs> so that's all I got to say about that. All right. Well, and thank you very much for listening, listening to the program. Good, good podcast. Good podcast. I'm glad that I got it out of my system. I will be up in Indian Springs tomorrow, which is about 35 miles north of Las Vegas. Small little town. Helping out a teacher of mine, sitting in the classroom, making sure these knuckleheads do what they're supposed to be doing and making sure they don't hurt each other, making sure they don't tear up the furniture and making sure that they don't get on my nerves. Two out of three won't be bad. But hey, you know what? I got bills to pay. I got things to do. I got dreams to live. and I got podcasts to record. And I thank you very much for listening. So, you know, as I always say, man, be good to yourself. Take care of yourself. Take, be good to others and all that good stuff. Woo. Some chicken and some waffles and some soda. Here I come. Music. Music.